0: Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast.
1: Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime,
2: Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own
3: are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 41, Runaway.
1: You pig! Ow! What did you do? Shut up back there. I'm a kid. You're a dwarf. Ow! I said shut up! She called me Monkey Boy? She did. She yeah, called well, that's me that's Monkey Boy. That's her job. Boy. Hey. You're 13? She's your big sister. That's her job. You're 13? Mm-hmm. Let's see. Your name is... Butchy she You and your family just left your home in Pahokee, Florida For a 9,000 mile trip across the country And when the fireworks go off tonight Your mom, Butchie's mom Runs out on the family They never see or hear from her again Please don't let it happen to Emma and her family How come you decide when and what we do? It's on the dad So that makes you boss? (laughs) Of course Maybe if we all just Butchie! What's going on, Mom?
0: You wouldn't
1: understand. Come on, I'm thirteen.
0: Yeah, my little man.
4: <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast. I'm Christopher D. Philippus. I'm Allison Pregler, and I'm Matt Dale. And we welcome you one and all to this sort of new iteration of the Quantum Leap podcast. You guys out there have heard Allison and Matt and myself on the podcast before just last month in the Mirror Image special. I think that Albie liked it, right, guys? Because he invited us to come back and pinch hit again and tackle the season three episode Runaway.
5: Yeah, very exciting.
4: It's going to be a lot of fun. And not only are we going to be talking about Runaway, but we're going to be bringing you an interview... With Tom McTeague. Now, Tom wasn't in Runaway, but he did play Blake's toadying Yes Man Calloway in the previous episode, A Little Miracle. That's the Christmas episode that apparently keeps on giving because we've done, what, like three shows about it already? <laughs> Anyway, we did get the interview with him and we didn't want it to pass. And he's actually a funny, chill guy. I got to speak to him for about an hour or so. We will be bringing that to you a little bit later in the podcast. So stay tuned for that as well. But before we go any further, you guys, you know, you might be wondering, where the heck are Albie and Heather? And like we said before... They had asked us to fill in, doing a podcast is difficult, and um, it requires so much time you wouldn't believe, and they're just busy. So we want to keep the production schedule going forward. We don't want to miss any weeks uh, because we just have a new dedication to getting this show out on time and to keeping our listeners engaged. So we will not be breaking the timeline we will not be doing series spoilers right cuz i think that's important right because that's the the paradigm that albie and heather set out going forward yeah we need to we need to carry that on
6: yeah we're not going to be telling anyone what happens to dumbledore so <laughs>
5: <laughs> please please i haven't seen any star wars <laughs> So rest assured, if you don't know
4: how the series ends, and I don't know how you don't know how the series ends, if you listen to our last spoilerific podcast about Mirror Image, but still, we will not be spoiling it for you here. We will be going on in series order, we will not be jumping the timeline, and uh, we are at Runaway. But before we get into it, guys, just bear with me. Before we can go any further, I have an announcement to make, and it's a happy one. We have a new patron on Patreon. Patreon. Thank you to Mr. Michael Bryan, who has joined us at the producer level. His name will now appear in the credits of the podcast going forward. Thank you so much, Michael, for supporting the show. If you guys want to check out our Patreon page, it's patreon.com slash Podcast. We hope that you will go over there and consider supporting us and we're in the process of building all new content that will be exclusive to our Patreon members. So please consider checking it out and supporting the show. It will help defray server costs and equipment costs and allow us to bring you the best podcast possible. That address, again, is patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. So let's get on with the show. Guys, I want to get your initial impressions. What do you think of Runaway? Can we start with Allison? I
6: feel like um, our initial impressions are probably going to be very similar. I think it is uh, a suitable episode it is uh not every one of them is gonna knock it out of the park um there's not really any episode that i dislike so um i enjoyed it but it's it's sort of middle of the road
5: yeah i think i'd I'd echo that i i think it's um it's it's an average episode with three really standout moments and hopefully I'll, i'll come on to what i think those standout moments are later on but uh yeah it's it's watchable (laughs) <laughs> My <laughs> praise indeed. <laughs> oh, <Contrable>. damn. <dear. laughs> <Ooh.
6: sighs> I just got to like clarify that like I have nice points to say about it. So saying that yeah. it's middle of the road is not me saying that it is a bad episode.
4: No, I think I agree with you there as well. And I think you're right, Allison. We did have very similar ideas on this episode because coming at it, especially when I was just remembering it before even rewatching it, I don't think I had seen this episode more than once or twice. And I had no desire to go back to it. And the first time I rewatched it, like you guys, I thought it was just a solid middling kind of Mm. quantum leap episode. It it sort of hit all, checked all the boxes, you know, hit all the marks. But then when I rewatched it for the second time, it just, it kind of opened up for me. There's actually a lot more of this episode than meets the eye, in my opinion. And we'll get into that later. But It's very well constructed, and there are a lot of subtle things going on. It's really a solidly crafted episode in many ways. It's almost deceptively simple. So there are a lot of things I want to get into, but before we do that, why don't we hear the episode recap?
2: Season 3, Episode 11, Runaway. Leap date, July 4th, 1964. Original broadcast date, January 4th, 1991. Written by Paul Brown. Directed by Michael Cadelman. If the knowledge that the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future had changed a man's life for the better wasn't enough to get Sam choked up, leaping in mid-bite of a burger certainly would. Sam is in the aura of a 13-year-old boy named Butchie, who is on a cross-country trip from their home state, of Florida, to the Wyoming mountains, with his controlling father, Hank, desperate mother, Emma, and bullying older sister, Alexandra. Al tells Sam that Emma is going to disappear, and the trauma would ruin the lives of both Butchie, who does not graduate high school, and his sister, who gets pregnant at 16. Al assumes that Emma will run off with Bill McCann, a man she and Hank both knew in high school, and who they reunite with on the trip. Billy is also traveling cross-country with his daughter Beth. If being consistently picked on by Sam's host's sister wasn't bad enough... It's also clear that Hank's controlling nature is causing severe tension in his and Emma's marriage. After an argument, Emma escapes into the forest to try to compose herself, and Sam follows her. Emma has been reading The Feminine Mystique, a book widely credited with sparking the second wave of feminism in the United States, and it is clear that reading the book has made Emma realize just how deeply unsatisfied she is in life. After having had to give up her dream of going to college and becoming a doctor when she became pregnant with Alex. Since Butchie and Alex are now teenagers, and are more capable of taking care of themselves, Sam convinces Emma to go back to school. Sam does his best to keep Emma and Billy apart, but they keep running into each other. With all the time that Emma and Billy had been spending together, Hank's jealousy gets the better of him, and he punches Billy with instructions to stay away from Emma. Emma then tells Hank to stay away from her, Sam tries to talk some sense into Hank, and he learns that Hank is very jealous of Billy's doctorate and more prestigious career. In his youth, Hank had won a football scholarship to college, but he dropped out after sustaining an injury. Sam is able to convince Hank to listen to what Emma wants in her life. But upon hearing Emma's desire to return to school, Hank is strongly against the plan. He believes it is his job to support the family, and being very proud of owning his poultry factory, tells Emma that she should be happy with how well she's been taken care of. Emma runs off again. Al returns because he has managed to find out some more information about what happens to Emma. It turns out that she did not run out on the family after all, as he has come across records of her corpse being found nearby in the 1990s. Sam leads Hank, Alex, Billy, and Beth to the cliff that Emma has somehow become stuck on. So the family tries to lower a rope for Emma to grab a hold of. But she is so frozen in fear that Sam has to be lowered to personally lift her back up to the top. Hank and Billy have a lot of difficulty with the rope, and it almost completely snaps, but ultimately Sam and Emma reach the top safely. At the 4th of July celebration, Hank and Emma reconcile, and Al informs Sam that their roles end up completely reversed. Hank eventually retires, and Emma eventually gains her doctorate and becomes a renowned psychiatrist. As for Alex, Sam earns her grudging respect when he dangles her over a well and warns her not to ever pick on her brother again. Satisfied with the new family dynamic, Sam leaps.
4: Okay, well, thank you for that, Zoe. That was a great episode recap written by Hayden. So let's have at it, guys. I mean, there are a lot of really key themes in this episode, and I'd say the chief one would have to be women's liberation, would it not? Women's lib for sure, yeah. I was especially curious, Allison, to get your take on this, because I have some definite ideas about the way they portrayed Emma's struggle on this episode, but I really think it, it begs a female perspective, especially on such a, I hate to say this, but Quantum Leap is kind of a male-centric show. I mean, it's science fiction from the 90s. It was written mainly by men, produced mainly by men for, you know, I think for men. And when they try to tackle issues that are outside of that, you know, they like with minorities or with women, I always wonder, are they doing it justice? Does it come across as real or does it come across as trite? I'd value your insight into that.
6: Well, I think um, you're right in that it is more of a, a male-centric show, but I do think that they have a strong point of view for women, and I think that Deborah Pratt is a big part of that, uh, having her voice in there, and uh, I'm not sure how much she contributed to this episode, but a lot of these themes, I think, are are thanks to the fact that she was helping run things, too. One of the things I wanted to bring up about this episode and, and that topic in particular, you know, this episode is not one that I come back to very much. It's, it's not one that I think about a lot, but it is one that has a message that resonates with me a little bit. And the character of Emma reminds me a lot of my own mother. Um, a lot of the things that she says about, you know, not wanting to feel like a non-person and um, being able to be fulfilled with her life and do things outside of just being a mother or a sister, you know, be Emma, be her own person. And uh, I think that that was a good topic to handle because I haven't seen a, a lot about that. So uh, I like the way that they handled it in this.
4: I thought it was handled pretty well, too. But I think that Emma's story takes a back seat in a lot of ways, to Hanks. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But Matt, what did you think about the way they handled the women's lib aspect of the episode?
5: Yeah, I mean, I'd, um, I'd really echo what Alison what said. Emma reminded me too of of my mother. I think probably quite a few of us from our generation grew up with parents who'd gone through this and who had memories of this kind of time. So yeah, for for sure, that, that brought back a lot of memories of my childhood and, and my mom telling me what she'd been through. But yeah, absolutely. I think um, what you've just said, that there is a lot of this story is is Hank's story. And that probably relates to the fact that, yeah, there there are a lot of episodes of Quantum Leap that are very, very focused on female issues. And most of them are written by Deborah Pratt. Uh, This is one of those rare episodes that tries to tackle a female issue, but is written by a man. And I think intentionally or not, it ends up being more about how hank struggles with that change then and, and it's kind of a view from the outside and i don't mean that as a, um to put a downer on the the wonderful performance by uh by the woman that plays emma or or the fantastic writing but um yeah for, for me i i really focus on hank a lot during this episode
6: can, can i just say i feel like they were very forgiving of hank's character mm. and there were a lot of things he did i don't think were addressed um he was hitting his kids mm-hmm, yeah. and this was not addressed in the episode. Like he, you know, he swings his arm back and, and hits Sam in the back of the car in the beginning. He tries to strike him across the face at one point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like maybe it was more issues than they could tackle in one episode um, because it is a very simplified plot. Uh, but I felt like that, that should have been addressed in some way.
5: Well, you know, every time Sam leaps into a a teenager or a kid, he gets beaten up by somebody. I I think that's a theme of the show that uh, if if you're a, a male kid, yeah, just expect to get roughed up a bit by your family. <laughs> that that's that, quite quite seriously that this happens in Kamikaze Kid. It happens in others. It does. If it's um, you know, it's, it happens in All Americans. It's just this thing that uh, if you're a kid growing up in the the sixties or seventies or fifties, or um and you're a, you're a male kid, then yeah, you, you're going to get beaten up a bit.
6: Do you think that contributed to Alexandra's beating up of Sam? Her being more rough and physical.
4: Now that's funny. I never even considered that because. To me that was the stereotypical bigger sister character and I don't have an older sister but I do have an older brother who used to mercilessly beat the crap out of me any chance he got. So <laughs> I I I could relate to Butchie in that sense but not having had a sister to do that to me. I didn't know if that was realistic or not but it just struck me as a natural sibling relationship
5: because that's what I experienced. It does. While we're talking about the the siblings beating up each other i i've got to ask because you guys are both american i'm coming at this very much from a, a, a british perspective is a purple nurple a real thing or did they Im- <laughs> <laughs> i mean it obviously the, the 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 thing yeah is is real i never heard it called a purple nurple before uh i think i know
4: what you might have heard it called it might be a little yeah. bit uh a little bit too blue for the quantum leap podcast is that
5: pg-13 <laughs> yeah it, we we, we call it something a bit more graphic, which is a bit more descriptive.
6: A bit more alliterative? Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs>
5: Ends in Twister?
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think some of this stuff, um, like purple nurples or the, the part where um, the milkshake falls onto his crotch and starts freezing his crotch, you know, all these um, bits of... Not meaner, but all this stuff that's sort of humor that comes out of some misery. Uh, I think some of that is from Paul Brown, because I think that's just sort of his sense of humor. And, and I really like that in his scripts, that he'll add things like that occasionally.
4: Well, I think it also helps to make it more of a real family dynamic, less of a TV family dynamic. And why don't we circle back to that um, with Hank reaching back into the back seat and, you know, hitting the kids. That happened to me on car trips when we acted up. And I got to say, Allison, I know that you pointed it out as something that really stood out to you, but when Hank raised his hand to hit Sam in the face, to me, that was one of the most organic scenes, not only of the episode, but of the series, because that is something that would have happened, and it is in perfect keeping with Hank's character. And you're right, I don't know if they give Hank a pass in this episode, or if they're just portraying somebody as they really would have been in those days. Can we delve into Hank a little bit?
6: I think that it is accurate. Like, I don't think that they were inaccurate with it. And I don't know how much change you can enact in a person in a certain time, because that is the way that people act. There's only so much change that you can do at a time. Um, But they also have lines from Al uh, saying things, you know, like, that's how guys acted back then, or they're from a different generation. And you hear that excuse a lot. And um, yeah. I think in an episode that is trying to say that because people act a certain way in a certain time, uh, doesn't mean that it is a correct way to act, uh, like women's lib. You know, a lot of women just stayed at home and things were changing. And so I feel like it's something that should have at least been addressed, even if it couldn't be changed.
4: What I liked, though, is that they made Hank both a bad guy and a clueless jerk, but also a good guy <laughs> and a loving husband. And. <laughs> It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, especially if you're trying to point out the troubles that, you know, the Joe Everyman would have had in the face of this this changing paradigm of society, this, this women's lib thing. I mean, one of the first things Hank says is that Butchie has to, you know, stop with those sissy reflexes. And he's got like sort of this boss mentality, this obsessive schedule keeping, which also is kind of like a cliche of a dad driving <laughs> everybody crazy on a vacation. I mean – Getting off topic just a little bit, I know that a lot of Quantum Leap episodes are homages to different kinds of movies. <laughs> Was this their take on vacation? <laughs> and, uh,
6: <laughs> it's a very clean take on vacation, yeah, that's, that's true. what it is.
5: And just a little dark, but... Uh, <laughs>
6: They do have like the, the little, the camp chipmunk or whatever, which reminded me of, you know, the Wally World. Thing. Yeah. And yeah. the buffalo
4: chimps and monkey boy. And there was one line straight out of Christmas Vacation that's got to be my favorite line in that entire movie when uh, <laughs> Cousin Eddie goes, goes to Rusty, let's go find your sister, <laughs> which is just gross and horrible. But Hank actually says it to Sam in this episode. So it was another vacation <laughs> callback to me. It just took me right out of it. <laughs> I don't think Hank's that creepy, but he can be a creep. In the same scene, he veers back and forth. They're, they're listening to the radio, and they hear about the Johnson Civil Rights Bill being enacted. And he says, everybody in this country—remember that, kids—everybody in this country deserves a fair shake. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, good for you. You're teaching your kids mm-hmm. the right thing. But then that is almost immediately followed up by the map scene, where he is just a jerk. Mm-hmm. He's not malicious, but he is a jerk to Emma, as if, like, it's inconceivable to him that a woman could actually read a map. But then Emma backs him up saying, "Well, I might not be able to read a map, but I can do other things." You know, and it's just like, "Well, why not have her read the map and say, here hotshot'?" Or that every time they they had an opportunity to give Emma agency in this episode, they didn't. And most of her story just fell back on the things that she missed out on in her life, the things that she is currently missing now mm-hmm. and what she wants and how frustrated she is. But at the same time, they could have made her, they could have written her a little stronger. I don't know how they would have done that. The map scene would have been one way to do it. But did you guys notice that?
6: I think that the whole point of, of their relationship, what they were bringing to light about this is that she didn't have a voice and that a lot of women didn't have a voice and she would just be steamrolled. By her overbearing husband who thought, you know, I'm the one in charge because I'm the dad and I'm the husband. And uh, I think she did have moments where she spoke up about it, you know, when she's confronting him about the book and says, I don't have an orgasm scrubbing the floor. <laughs>
4: Oof, I had shivers on that scene.
6: <laughs> <laughs> you know, she is she is finding her voice in this episode and. uh so I I don't know if that means she wasn't as strong, and I do agree that uh, the story was more focused on Hank than on her. Maybe because he was the one that had to make the biggest change.
4: Yeah, I, I really saw Hank as an object lesson for the males in the audience, and his frustrations are so much more highlighted in this because Emma's seem I don't want to say cliche, but they seem by the book. Where you know he is just baffled. It was a great performance, but it's it's coming from somebody who's done everything for his family that society says that he has to do for his family. And he's done it all right, so why aren't you happy? Mm. To him, it's not that she needs more. To him, there isn't any more. I make the money. You make the happy home. It's selfish to want more because what else is there? So again, I don't think that he's necessarily cruel. I just don't think that he has – the the facilities to to conceive that somebody would want something more
5: yeah and i i think that comes out so so strongly in that that heart to heart that he has with um with sam up on the rocks you can tell he does love emma yeah he may he's treating her like an object but only in the way that he's been brought up to do that um he does have some genuine feelings for her but he's grown up in a world that says men don't have feelings, men aren't, men shouldn't be expressing feelings. He can't put it into words. And you're right. But when he did try to
4: put it into words, why was he doing it with Sam? It just goes to show you again. <laughs> it's like he's not showing his vulnerability to his wife. He's only showing his wife his anger. And, I mean, it, it, it just it permeates everything he does. And he's also jealous because, you know, we, we haven't talked about it, but enter Billy McCann. That's his name, right? <laughs> yeah.
6: There's a line in this episode from the guy who, who plays uh, Billy. And uh, I just love the delivery of this line. This has nothing to do with any of the themes or anything. But uh, he goes, well, everyone back home calls me William. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't know. I just
6: really love that delivery. It was so good.
4: <laughs> I think, you know what? There's a lot of territorial pissing going on between Hank and Billy oh, in this yeah. episode. And I mean, that's, that's the other thing where you can really see Hank all but screaming, I'm threatened, I'm threatened, because (laughs) that first scene with Billy, what does he do? He comes up behind Emma and Butchie, and he just drapes his arms around them like a gorilla, Mm -hmm. as if to say, mine, mine. And what does he do? He humble brags (laughs) about his business, and even later on when he's repairing the car. Uh, when they're broken down on the side of the road, I guess a PhD doesn't qualify you for <laughs> auto repair or whatever. And it's just like, God, could you be any more of a
6: dick? Or, yeah. And they're talking about the, the different places that the, the Billy characters worked with, like his doctorate. And it's like, oh, it looks like you can't hold down a job. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's the whole like- thing
5: is one big pissing contest between the two of them. Mm-hmm. It really is. And
4: now Billy is a weird character because he's smart. He just naturally grooves with Emma in interests that she has. Mm-hmm. But in the end, he's somewhat of a goat because he does need Hank to rescue him. Everybody in this episode needs Hank to res- rescue them, by the way. But that final scene, the climactic scene at Devil's Backbone, which I want to get more into later. But what does he do? He cops out.
5: Yeah, he says, I- I'll go and get the ranger. Yeah, th- yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. you go do that. You go get yeah. the ranger. <laughs> well, you, know?
6: you know what? I-, I do agree on that. But I do think like – that was also the right thing to do because, like, rescuing someone by tying your child to a tree oh, and yeah. lowering them down. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm glad that it worked out and it makes for great television. But in reality, you do want to call some authorities and say, hey, there's a woman on the side of this, this uh, cliff here.
5: One of the things that shocks me most about Hank as a as a, a relatively new father myself, not only does he let his kid tie himself to the tree, he doesn't even check the knots. Sam ties the rope around <laughs> Him. <laughs> and hank immediately just starts letting him go he doesn't look at the knot
6: <laughs> he needs to toughen up and yeah. and get these uh you know go down the cliffside. like if he can't handle this yeah. like he's not tough <laughs> enough for the world
5: <laughs> but uh, the whole thing does seem like uh, we're, we're witnessing this battle between the past and the future you, you've got Hank very much rooted in the past, the father figure that looks after everything. And then, yeah, Billy is more about the intellect and about the, okay, yeah, like you say, what we now consider to be the right thing to do. Go and get the expert, in this case, the ranger. Don't be afraid to say I need help. And, the, the yeah, the whole show is this kind of clash between sticking in the past and moving to the future. It, I also just found it really
4: odd the way that the sort of the the more enlightened male perspective at the end of the episode was was a bit vilified. And Hank's, you know, just uh, good old stick to it uh, male chauvinistic ideals prevailed. I mean, they really saved the day. So it was kind of a mixed message in the episode. But it also, it worked dramatically for the sake of reconciling the relationship at the end. So I understand why they did it. It's just that there's a lot of weird subtext going on here and none of it's really jiving.
6: One thing I noticed rewatching this episode is there is a lot of parallels to M.I.A. There's a character named Beth uh, with the daughter of of, uh, Billy. Uh, Sam is trying to keep a married woman away from a new man that parallels something in Al's life. And Al takes it really personally. So it it sort of comes down as a, a bit of a lighter version of M.I.A. in some aspects.
5: Yeah, I I agree, and I I build on that by saying that there's a, a great line in it: you can't fight fate. And in both MIA and here, there's just this string of coincidences that are pulling this pair together that um, Sam's supposed to be trying to keep apart. And in in MIA, that's that makes sense because Al's obviously lying about what uh, the reason that Sam's leaped in. In in this episode, it, it's kind of a bit of an inconsistency because you think, well. Sam's been leapt in there uh, by God or fate or time or whatever. And um, he does seem to be trying to fight fate because everything is leading uh, Billy and Emma to get together. It's very unusual.
4: Well, it's unusual if you look at it from the point of view of Al in this episode and what he is mm-hmm. telling Sam. And mm-hmm. what he's telling Sam is actually wrong. And this is a perfect way to get into sort of Al and Sam in this episode. And Alison, you're absolutely right. I could not help but think of MIA when I was watching this and also Al being just kind of a jerk in this episode. (laughs) I mean, he makes a monumental mistake because of his own prejudices. And I think that this points out like a real thankless side of Dean's role in the show, because Sam always has to be the eternal boy scout. Sometimes Al has to be the goat. And Mm -hmm. in this one, they made him not only, you know, un. I I wouldn't say okay it's justifiable in the sense of his history that he would have a bias against a woman leaving her husband for somebody else what did his mom run away with the encyclopedia salesman right
5: Hmm, yeah yeah
4: so obviously you might have trust issues and mommy issues there but to just blanketly put that on Emma from the word go I think it's a bit out of character for Al and I think it's one of the main flaws of this episode how did you guys react to that?
6: I think he did the same thing in Great Spontini to the mother in that one. Uh, I don't think it's out of his character. I think, like Hank, he is blind to his own faults. He's just focused on one thing and and makes the wrong decision.
5: Yeah, I think we, we want to like Al, so it's it's disappointing when... And yeah, Chris, you've explained exactly why it happens. But it, it's always disappointing when we see Al failing in some way. But it has to happen sometimes. And yeah, like Alison says, we, we saw this in Great Spontini very recently. Yeah, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, it's upsetting to see.
6: I find it interesting that Quantum Leap occasionally does go into the theme of uh, mothers who abandon their children. And I don't think that's usually the case in TV. Usually they talk about dads abandoning, but uh, you don't usually get it from the perspective of someone whose mom left them behind.
4: I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, one of the, my chief notes on this, it's just four words. A QL theme, moms leave. That's just <laughs> what it, you see it again and again in the show. And I wonder where that comes from.
6: It's unusual, but i th- I think maybe people who have experienced that appreciate seeing something from their perspective on screen.
4: I mean, I suppose. And it is nice. I shouldn't say nice. Maybe I'm being a jerk, but <laughs> it's so cliché. To see the deadbeat dad—I mean, that's that's such a staple of dramatic television, where you know it's it's the dad is a, a rat or a scoundrel—and to see the tables turned, I think Quantum Leap maybe does it a bit too much. But like you said, Alice, and it is a perspective that's not often explored. And at least they're doing something a bit different.
5: And they they give her every reason to do that in this episode, particularly at the start. Seeing Hank the way he is, you can understand why Emma has this desire to leave.
6: Yeah, it doesn't put her in the wrong by wanting to leave, even if that wasn't originally what was going to happen anyway. You know what, though? I think that
4: also the way they wrote this episode... They did everything they could to back up Al's point of view.
6: Well, that's them presenting that narrative so that the audience believes it, and then right. when you find out that didn't happen, you realize that you were following what what he was saying all along. You, mm. know, you were you weren't thinking about every perspective. Yeah, but isn't that isn't that kind of a cheap trick? Maybe. I mean, to to have <laughs> Al
4: sitting there saying, "Oh, she's she's a jerk. She's going to leave. She's gonna she's no good," and everything that happens in the episode, instead of pointing away from that, like it did in Mia kind of lends credence to his bias. And I thought that that was just maybe just a little too on the nose. It was just a little too much
5: manipulation. Isn't that just called a twist?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I expect more of quantum I I
5: agree. It's a bit heavy handed. I, I, yeah, I I see what you mean.
6: I read a, a script of this, which I think was a first revision and it was almost exactly the same, but There is a little more from Al about his relationship with his mom. Like, he goes a a little more in detail about when she left and and how he felt. And he had a line that was just heartbreaking, where he says, you know, I don't really think about her that much, but I wonder if she ever thinks about me. And he's a lot more emotional in the script about it, too. So I I don't know if that would have changed much about the episode, scaling it back like they did. But uh, interesting.
4: You know what? That that would have been beautiful because it would give you at least some sympathy for the way Al is acting in this. Because it's, it's not coming from a place of mistrust and anger. It's coming from a place of hurt and abandonment. And I don't know if they – I mean, they imply it, but they don't specifically show it in the episode. And I think it would have gone a long way for me at least being more on board with the way they made Al act in this episode if they kept that line. That's a beautiful line.
6: I think uh the way that it was changed and the way that Dean Stockwell delivers it in in the actual episode Al is a character who very much does not wear his emotions on his sleeve, you know, he's very vocal about stuff, but uh he hides a lot of things that really do hurt him. So, I still think it's it's the same sort of message just uh maybe not as overt about it. Okay, yeah. I I do, I do think they should have kept that line in though. I I liked that line a lot.
4: Were there any other big differences between that draft script and what we saw on camera that are notable to the episode?
6: Um, I thought it was a little bit more sexualization of young girls in it. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> this no. could be just me like... I don't know. Um, it, there's a line in it that is still kept in the episode, but it's said more leeringly in the script where uh, Al's talking about the sister Alexandra, like, oh, she'd have a great career in, in wrestling uh. and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> oh, nice. the, the character of Beth, uh, the daughter of Billy, she says a lot of creepy, flirty lines. Like, she's described as like a, a redheaded Lolita Ugh. in the script. Um, she's a lot more flirtatious and... and I guess, sexual in it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I found that was a theme that seemed to be uh, not translated to the episode, thankfully. Thank God. (laughs) Ew. Yeah. (laughs) Other than that, it it was almost exactly the same.
4: Well, it's funny you call it the the. She has a great his future. She has a great future as a mud wrestler because when I heard that, I said, "Damn it! I wish I'd watched this episode before I wrote my book. I might have wrote her into my book." But
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah, she'd she'd be the one. I don't know if we want to want to know about her future in wrestling.
4: So I I mean, know, it just would have, have been a nice callback that. for me as a geek. That's all. That's all. So <laughs> bad author. Bad author. So. Speaking of, you know, mud wrestlers that that appeared in my book, this episode actually has a really weird connection to me getting my book published. You guys want to hear it?
6: No. (laughs) Yeah, no. Okay, Allison,
4: you stop listening because I'm going to tell the story anyway. (laughs)
6: I'll mute it.
4: (laughs) It's funny. We were, um, when I was pitching my book, I went to a Quantum Leap convention in New Jersey called East Leap. And uh, Ginger Buchanan, the series editor, was there. And as part of that con, I had never been to anything like it. They had like a costume party. And it turns out that only like two people got dressed up in costume and the girls, uh, Nancy and Ruth, one of them got really upset that nobody really participated in the costume party. I didn't even know what a costume party was, but it just so happened that I was wearing this dorky collared shirt that had like a bunch of different colors on it and jeans and I went to my room, and I got a baseball hat that I use when I can't take a shower, and I need to cover my gross hair. <laughs> so I got the baseball cap out, and I came back down, and I put a name tag on myself that said Butchie. So Butchie <laughs> was my actually my very first cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So that's neither here nor Wait, there. Okay, but, but I got to know. did Photos or it didn't happen. I
6: got to know. Did you win the contest?
4: I don't know if anybody won the contest that night. Like I said, some of the organizers were a little upset, but I think it, what it did do was help endear me to Ginger, who uh, was the editor of the series. I hope, anyway, it got me that much closer to her, and especially since everybody from that point on was saying, Shut up, Butchie, for the rest of the night. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. All right. But anyway, yeah. But again, I digress. Let's get back to it. It sort of gets into some of the creepier aspects of Sam playing a 13-year-old in this episode because they're trying to pair him with the daughter, Beth. Anyway, that's the implication.
6: Is, is this the youngest character he's ever leaped into? I, that's what I was
4: going to ask Matt. Is, is it?
5: Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, yeah, on screen, it's, uh, it's the youngest leap. By a few years, because obviously it was Kamikaze Kid, he was uh, a few years older than that.
4: Okay, all right. And it's funny, um, as much as um, this reminded me of MIA, a lot of it also reminded me of the themes that were explored in Kamikaze Kid. It was almost as if Sam didn't rescue the big sister in that, and she had had she had lived out her life, maybe without you know the, the spousal abuse, without the physical abuse, but just sort of that road less traveled that they talk about, you know, and- Again, another another perfect segue, guys, into Sam's character in this. Playing a 13-year-old boy, how effective could he be? And trying to pair him off somewhat – anyway, the implication was there when he met Beth, because that's naturally what the parents would do, but Mm – you know, gross. <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, I, I do think that was at least funny because they don't know that he's not a 13-year-old kid and he's very uncomfortable with this and he doesn't reciprocate any of it. So I, I didn't find a, a problem with that being in there. I, I found it very funny.
5: Yeah, and uh, just going back to Kamikaze Kids, uh, you know, you, you have what Holly feels in that who is several years young, well, many years younger than the actor and they do kiss in that. So...
4: I, I don't know she
6: like, was twelve or thirteen yeah when they did that
5: oh really that kiss
4: is she was she was thirteen in real life or a character years in real life Wow wait yeah.
5: so this does not compare
6: you know what that was also a Paul Brown script mm. wasn't it Kamikaze kid
4: we're going down a dangerous road here aren't we
6: I'm sorry I'm sorry you can cut that out <laughs> I am not accusing Paul Brown of anything i I just found this episode very similar. <laughs> If he's listening and this is kept in, I'm so sorry. I'm not implying anything.
4: <laughs> I'm only teasing. Um, no, of course. But it, it's funny how certain writers will will hew to the same themes and do them well. But I didn't realize that Paul Brown had written Kamikaze Kid and this episode.
6: Both of the fathers in uh, Kamikaze Kid and in Runaway were hitting their kids and kind of like, you got to toughen up and and kind of that type of character.
4: Yeah, and again, I guess it's it's they're trying to speak to the, the zeitgeist of the time. But let me circle it back to Sam. Um, him being thirteen years old, it kind of limits the effectiveness he has in this episode. And one of if if I thought that Hank scene trying to hit him was was pretty organic, one of the least believable scenes, even though it was poignant to me, was Sam and Emma's heart to heart in the woods. What mom is going to talk to their thirteen-year-old boy like that, and what thirteen-year-old boy is going to carry on that conversation?
6: You know, I kind of liked it for that reason. In that that look that she gives him, I don't know the actress's name, but it was a, a great bit of acting when she's trying to find the words, and he says a non-person, mm. and her reaction to that, finding the exact word from her thirteen-year-old son. I thought that was uh, really interesting.
5: Yeah, and Chris, I'm I'm going to answer your question pretty directly as well. So I I grew up as a um a, a single child, sorry, as an only child with a in a single parent family i had to grow up pretty fast um i think when i by the time i was 13 my mum and i were having some some pretty grown up conversations and yes this is a different circumstance it's not as a single parent family but she is obviously feeling this real separation from Hank that is almost emotionally giving her that that kind of position.
6: To add to that, I've had conversations like that with my mom too. You know, so it it doesn't necessarily mean that it wouldn't happen.
4: Uh, it just means that when I was thirteen, I was a lot more immature and self
5: absorbed. So <laughs> I just like I say that the the situation I was in, um, I I couldn't get away with that as much. So that, that's just a very personal story that, that I it kind of that that scene did speak to me. Well, that's that's amazing. That's great to hear, because
4: that's why we have more than one host. It's great to get these <laughs> points of view. But it's funny, isn't it? Because the thing that I said, nah, that's stopping. You know, that's just TV. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, no, no, that's <laughs> no
6: that really. Yeah, no, yeah. Th- that was right there. So you know, maybe there's some people, too, that wish that they'd had that conversation with their mom, that there would have been someone to talk to them about that when they were feeling that way. That maybe you didn't have that perspective when when you were a kid? And
4: it's funny you use the word wish, because I I think that it was a lot of sort of, if you could go back and do it the way you wanted it to happen, like that wish fulfillment aspect of it, to just crystallize something so, you know, so clearly and to make that connection. Uh, I think a lot of women of the time who were facing this, maybe they needed that. And this is a scene that reflected that wish fulfillment. Like, oh, look, somebody does get it. And I can express what i was feeling even though i didn't get a chance to she's getting a chance to
5: Yeah, you know on, on the topic of that scene there was something that i have seen this episode a bunch of times there was something i only noticed when i was reviewing this for this podcast the moment where uh, where where scott says a non-person he has this real thousand mile stare going on i kind of started to wonder is he is he thinking about sam Emma's talking about being pulled in all these directions and not being a real person because she's this to this person, she's that to that person, she's got nothing left of herself. Sam's been leaping for for three years now. Is this non-person thing, is this actually touching Sam as well?
6: Wow. You know, I, I never thought about it that way, but I think that's exactly why it was written that way. I, I think you you hit the nail on the head.
5: <laughs> it took a lot of views to spot that, but...
6: <laughs> I never would have come up with that in a million
4: years. That's absolutely brilliant, because I was so so keyed in on Emma in that mm. scene, and the fact that I didn't think that Sam really belonged in that position, that I never really stopped to think of it from Sam's point of view. That's
5: absolutely... He's definitely having a revelation of some sort, and it, it's either he's thinking, wow, okay, I, I get Emma, or, okay, actually, I Emma and I are in a similar situation. Hmm.
6: <laughs> you know i I, i'm just wondering when did sam read the feminine mystique thank you when (laughs) he's like that's a great book and i'm like wait when did this happen (laughs) he's like hang on guys i'm i'm reading the feminine mystique i'll be right out it's my bathroom reading
4: hang on you hit a nail right on the head there because i never even thought of that But of all the out-of-character things that Sam has to do in this episode, I, I get it. Sam's got to be, like, woke because he's got to be on everybody's side. He's like, so, yeah, oh, that's a great book. Would he even have heard of that book? I mean, when that came out, it was in the 70s. He was probably so deep into research on Project Quantum Leap being the Wunderkund that maybe he would have heard of it tangentially. But I don't think he would have any use for it. And the Sam from Starcrossed, what did he say? Ugh, Lit. He's got no use for that kind of stuff. He wants bunsen burners
5: and math. And
6: <laughs> I love feminist Sam Beckett. So good.
5: There's this quantum leap trope that no matter what situation they're in, usually Al, sometimes Sam, has some specialist skill. It suddenly turns out Al used to uh, play pool, or or, or Sam, whatever. I haven't actually spotted. This is the least realistic example of that trope coming up. Um, so suddenly, <laughs> Sam's read the feminist mistake. It's, it's crazy.
6: Maybe this isn't that out of character. Didn't he have a line in Double Identity where where he's like over the voiceover? Well, maybe I'm here to start women's live. I get, uh. So maybe that's always been his dream. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean,
3: <laughs> that would be very
4: specific. I got to say, I mean, that to me is like grasping at straws. Women's lib? What What other big topic can we come up with of the transitional 60s? Um, civil rights? I don't know. It's like... Plus, I had a lot of problems with double identity as listeners to the podcast know, hey, yo, whoa, hey, I'm Italian, I'm a gangster. Whoa, <laughs> hey, that's
5: not stereotypical or offensive at all. Oh, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Anyway. Chris, were you putting on <laughs> an accent then? I couldn't tell a difference. <laughs> <laughs>
6: I was transported into the episode. It was so accurate. (laughs) Uh,
5: Well, you know, grow up in the Bronx, things
4: happen. That's all. (laughs) Let's just say that my on-mic voice is probably a little different than when I'm, you know, talking to my mother. So I'm so glad you brought up that feminine mystique thing. But it it shows, like, I think that Scott had a lot of thankless things to do in this episode, too, because this was such a Hank-Emma episode. Sam being a kid, it almost reminded me a bit of A Little Miracle where – You know, Charles Rocket was the star of that show. And it was really Blake's story with Sam being a catalyst in the background, you know, until the third act anyway, with the Ghost of Christmas Future. In this one, because Sam is so young, he can't really drive the action. He's got to react to everything. And for that, you know, being in in somewhat of a backseat position, both literally and figuratively in the episode. And no, I didn't write that. I just came up with that, even though it (laughs) sounded like I was reading it. Um, (laughs) I, I think it... It was a bit out of character, but he was able to play it just right. And I think it was right with that initial, oh boy. The oh boy to me, I love it. It's the signature of the show. But sometimes because of that, they have to cram it in. It's like a gimmick. But damn it, if Sam's oh boy in this episode wasn't just one of the best ones ever. It was just so on the nose when the shake spills in his lap. And hes it's very understated, but frustrated. And it was just an example of, okay, well, Scott's saying, okay, this is what they gave me. So... Let's see how we can do it. And I think he nailed it. But was it weird to you guys when Al's floating outside the window of the car that he is making Sam carry on a conversation? Don't you think Al would say something like, Look, I know you can't talk because you're literally next to three people. But <laughs> he does that all the
6: time though, doesn't he? Here's
4: what you gotta do, you know? And it, it it's funny because it leads it's almost like sometimes an opera when they sing over each other and they have like triple you know, conversations going on at once that the audience has to follow. It's it's almost the same thing because Sam is talking to Al, but the sister is answering him. And, you know, it, you have sort of this this dichotomy going on, which, which makes for a funny scene, which makes for a more interesting scene. But it, I, I just don't think that Al would be so clueless as to put Sam in the position where he has to give him an answer. When obviously he can't talk.
6: <laughs> no, doesn't he do that every episode? Does he? It does not seem unusual to me that he do that. <laughs> he always puts him in that position, which yeah, is they so usually, funny. They usually
4: find a bathroom or something. Yeah, or a phone. Or- no.
6: Well, I mean, what's he going to do? He's in the car, you know? But uh, I, I like the line that, uh, that Al has about like, okay, no, don't ever litter again.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm just yeah. gonna
6: throw in that that environmental thing that's uh added specifically for Dean Stockwell. For Dean,
4: yeah, exactly. And I liked Sam's car sick ploy because I got sick on every long car trip we ever took. So my poor father can attest to that. I feel I felt bad, but uh, it was just like, no, that's a perfect way to make them pull over right quick, you know. <laughs>
6: uh, here here's something I got from the script that I thought was interesting. Uh when Sam asked to, to pull over to go to the bathroom in the beginning, apparently According to the stage directions, he's realizing that he hasn't gone to the bathroom since before his last quantum leap. (gasps) So I guess he'd been holding it in for a while. Was that in the
4: script? It was. What? (laughs) Don't you think like Sam – okay, we're going to get into the weeds here. Don't you think that in the waiting room, Sam's body would just – they would basically have to straight cath him?
6: Well, it's not his body. Well, whatever physical body is occupying. You know what? Body I'm going to go into very light spoiler territory uh, for the next episode. You can cut it if you want, but they pretty much establish it is not his body, or it is his body. And in the waiting room, it's the the person he leaps into.
4: And I've seen them play it both ways. And I I think it's it's basically because episode, whatever the script requires it to be.
5: And you're going to talk about what happens to his bladder between leaps. Then you're also (laughs) going to bring up the whole thing of what happens to his hair between leaps. Why is it regularly cut? Um, It's just don't go there. (laughs) They
4: see whoever is occupying that space. They see Sam's physical aura. So I think that they're in there shaving him and giving him haircuts and, you know, sponge baths. And maybe when the Leapy comes into the waiting room, the first thing they say is, all right, this dude needs a shower. Go take care of yourself. You know, the bathroom's right over there. Scrub hard. I, you know, I don't know. Because you got to figure they even established in the first or second episode that it could be weeks between um when Sam leaps out and when they find him in another body, even though to him it's instantaneous. So – What's going on with that prone figure in the waiting room for those weeks?
6: Maybe uh maybe whenever he's between leaps, that's when all the the shaving and the bathing and all yeah. that stuff goes on. <laughs> like he's he's floating out in the ether and then, you know, God takes care of him or fate or whatever.
5: God takes care of his bladder. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> so do you think he disappears from the waiting room when he's not in somebody? Do you think somebody just appears in the waiting room? Or do you think see, I always figured it that they still see Sam's body just lying there.
6: Well, if if the intro says that he vanished,
4: yeah, certainly yeah, yeah.
6: he's he's not there.
4: See, and I think that that's just a flaw in the intro.
6: <laughs> well, you can oh, see <laughs> it. You can see in other ones uh, how it happens. So, yeah,
5: I, I think it, it's generally fairly clear through the show that there is no one in the waiting room between episodes there's a, there's a couple of contradictions to that in season five which we obviously can't touch right now but uh there's two moments that really contradict that but i think generally speaking yeah sam sam's off in the void somewhere his, his body and his mind off in some white mist where uh god is uh shaving him and um giving, <laughs> a, a ni- giving him a nice new cut what a nice god
6: <laughs> It just sounds sort of creepy when you say it that way
5: if it's between seasons a whole new style
6: I'm just imagining that that scene in one one of the Star Trek movies where where there's Troy and uh, and Riker and she's shaving him in the top.
4: Oh no! <laughs> so Marina certs that's that's not a bad god to be shaving you, I guess, right? Yeah.
5: yeah. W- were we talking about Runaway at some point? <laughs> okay.
6: <laughs> uh, was this the, was this the debut of Al's stop sign jacket? I know it appears in Glitter Rock, which is later, right?
5: breaking the timeline but
6: sorry i'll spoil that his stop sign jacket appears in another episode i love that stop sign jacket so good
5: yeah this is the first appearance of the stop sign jacket and one of the first things he does while he's wearing it is stand there shouting stop 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 Um,
6: (laughs) amazing
5: (laughs) wow oh my god yeah this is the first of three appearances
6: I wonder if that was like a joke that uh, Jean-Pierre Dorliac put in. Mm. He's like, for this scene, I I need him to say stop. What is he going to be wearing? Mm, I have an idea.
4: (laughs) Yeah, good for you, John. I mean, uh, Jean-Pierre, rather, I should say, right? But uh, why not? It's perfectly in keeping with Al's fashion sense. So can we delve a little bit into some of the music in this episode? Because I found that it was a great counterpoint to a lot of the subtextual things that we've been talking about. Did you guys? Did you guys see it with the original music intact, or do you know?
6: I did. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, there's only um, there's only one music replacement uh, for this one on the Region One DVDs. Um, oh, really? Because, but, yeah, because uh, crazy. At the start, because fortunately, almost every time any music appears in this episode, the characters sing along. And whenever that happens, they have to keep the original music intact. So I'm glad they were able to with this one, because yeah. it's really
4: important to establish like the character themes. Um, it was almost like leitmotif, because it starts out with Patsy Klein singing mm-hmm. crazy. And that's that's almost like crazy for trying crazy for loving you. I mean, that's that's Emma right there. Yeah. And then they go right into what will I do? which I guess that's Emma and um, Hank's song. Mm. But I thought it was a great way to set up the depth of their relationship, but it also helped to highlight the rift that's growing between them, because Hank, trying not to appear soft, just scoffs at it and turns it off. And you can tell that Emma's somewhat hurt about it. It was an odd thing. Like, why wouldn't a husband sing along with his wife to their song? And it just went to show, once again, what Emma's up against, just his narrow point of view. It also helped to open the door to, you know, a lot of exposition. You got a heap and help of exposition <laughs> with that one and Emma's backstory. But, you know, but so what? You have to have exposition sometimes in episodes. But
6: Yeah, I didn't really think about it. But most of the songs in this do parallel things that are happening in it, and you don't usually find that in in quantum leap episodes you know they got like crazy you feel like he's on cra- going crazy on this trip and and them singing that song mm-hmm. and and hank singing along to run away and not understanding what's going to happen um walk like a man is playing while sam's yep. in the car is this little boy
4: and baby where did all love go
6: yeah and I didn't notice until this episode until watching this episode again that Sam is the one that hands the record over to the the DJ to play what'll mm-hmm. I do in the final scene yeah where where did he get that record
4: uh, maybe <laughs> maybe the DJ had them out okay well, I don't know maybe he busted the jute the box like uh, mr. Martini in its a wonderful life I don't know um, but yeah that's it was a nice little touch. But what completely took me out of that scene is when they're saying to him, isn't it a little bit past your bedtime? And uh, Emma's like, yeah, I guess he's earned it. Yeah, because I saved your friggin' life, mom. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe don't get on my case about it being 1030 and I'm drinking a pop, you know? I was
6: tied to a tree. There were fireworks going off. I, I drug you to the surface. I get an extra hour and a soda pop. Thank you. Deal.
3: <laughs>
6: <laughs> he's making some hard negotiations.
4: You know, another one of the songs that was playing in the car was Our Day Will Come. And again, I thought it was a little bit on the nose, but it was when Emma was talking about female rights and um,
5: the feminine mystique. Yeah, I mean, but going back to the, the feminine mystique, that, that reminds me, I, I said back at the start of this, um, this show, there were three really strong moments for me, and I, I've, I've already touched on two of them. The third really, really strong moment for me, um, particularly in terms of the performances that Hank and Emma put in, is that confrontation they have where he's, he's standing over her. It's directed so well. He's really physically imposing. And it's obviously showing the the, the physical difference between them. But then he takes the book away from her and, and throws it away and says, that's what I think of the damn book. And it kind of parallels not only this physical difference, but also this, this mental attitude. And it, it's kind of explored a a little bit in some of the episodes like Color of Truth, um, where we look at intellect and the importance of that. He's not allowing her to read a book, and that's how he keeps power. And its I, I think it's fantastic how they managed to get both of those in the same place. And it's all because she's learning something from, from a book. Um, and it's its great how the writer manages to get, get both of those in in the same place.
4: I think you're absolutely right about that. It also shows sort of how they want to make Hank somewhat of an anti-intellectual mm. in this episode and the fact that it, it's not that he's mad that she's reading it he's completely threatened by it so that's what i think your damn book because i don't know how to handle this uh so you know so this is how it's going to be and it leads to that final scene yeah do you guys mind if we go back to sort of that climactic scene oh i Devil's mind backbone <laughs> oh you mind well yeah it, because it's i i think again like i said such weird subtext going on and none of it jiving because you have Hank being portrayed as sort of the bad guy for not wanting to embrace the change that Emma is, is striving for yet. Then you get to the fireworks and Emma, a devil's backbone. And, uh, Allison, I mean, this is something that I wanted a female perspective on. It must have been maddening that Emma needed to be rescued at the end of this episode. And that's when I realized this episode is not about Emma and her journey This is about Hank's journey of acceptance. Where were you when you saw that she fell? Like, what was going through your mind? Um, I I didn't see it
6: the
5: way you're saying it all. (laughs) No, huh? Me neither, actually. I I I just saw
6: it as like an action piece. Um, Sam's there to rescue people. And as far as her emotional journey, um, she did... Rescue herself. She talks to Hank about these things. Maybe Sam has to help him listen. But she does eventually stand up for herself. Um, I don't think her having to be rescued off the side of a cliff means that you know, oh, damsel in distress. I, I think Sam has to. But do that she's she is a
3: literal,
4: literal damsel in distress.
6: <laughs> well, it's it's not because of uh, any actions. It's not. It's not to do with you know her being. I don't know. I'm. I'm not saying this right, but I, I just didn't see it uh, the way that you're saying. I wasn't infuriated by it. Uh, I thought it was a pretty nice action piece. I liked the visuals of it. Uh, I liked Al hanging in midair and uh, the, mm. the composite shot of the cliff from the distance with all the fireworks oh. on the Fourth of July. Uh, I thought that, that looked pullback
4: great. shot. Yeah, it was beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, on- yeah. Undoubtedly beautiful scene. Actually, a lot of the location shots in this were, were stunning. There was this giant waterfall in one of the shots right before they were – I think it was like a jogging scene when, again, Sam is trying to turn Hank around. But uh, do you know where this was shot,
5: Matt? Um, no, I don't. I, it's, it's quite hard to find details about uh, location shooting in Quantum Leap. We, we know that generally they didn't go very far from the studio. So, um, you know, this is, this is bound to be somewhere in Los Angeles. But, uh, yeah, got to be pretty limited options.
4: Well, I was just curious because they, they did seem that they were in some park with a lot of high elevations just from the way they were running. But there are always tricks of the camera and things yeah. like that. Yeah, you yeah. Know. But, I mean, getting back to that final scene, how did Emma fall? They never said how she got on the side of that cliff. She was just there. Yeah, that's the one thing that really bothers me. Is there any indication, um, Alison, in that draft script that you read. Did it end the same way? And was there any indication of how she wound up down there?
6: I don't think so. I think it's just she was. I'm trying to remember what the the impetus was for her falling. I, I think it was just the whole time. The reason she disappeared is because she got lost and fell. You know, maybe she was walking around at night and she wasn't paying attention. Uh, and it really had nothing to do with her abandoning her family.
5: I mean, at the end of the day, it's. It, it, it's dark. She's crying. She's probably wiping her eyes. There's there's fireworks going off everywhere. It's conceivable that she just walks straight off the edge. But from an editing point of view, it does seem really odd that we don't see that slip. It, it's just it seems so. Oh, there she is. It, it's,
4: <laughs> yeah, it, it's yeah.
5: It's It really stands out. Um, like like we've missed something. We we know what happened, but we it feels like we should have seen it.
6: Maybe Sam was dangling her off the edge like he would dangle a preteen over a well
0: and, uh, and didn't really hold on to her very well.
6: <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a
4: little weird because they're trying to posit Butchie as kind of small and twerpy in this episode. Yet you have Sam who's, you know, he's got to be six feet tall in real life holding this girl over a deadly opening.
6: What? Yeah. How, why is that the way the leap is solved? That's how he <laughs> leaps out. He has to dangle a little girl above a well <laughs> and threaten her like, don't you tease your brother anymore. Or what? He'll drop her down the well?
4: Yeah. Exactly. It's just like you're going to put the the fear of God into her. It's like, I don't get what the ending was for. I guess maybe they just needed sort of that brother-sister closure too, but it contradicts what Al said in the beginning of the episode. Well, that's her job. She's your big sister. She's supposed to beat you up.
6: Was was that the reason for the leap the whole time? Was, the, was did nothing else matter? Yeah, th-
5: this is just a. It's a very dark version of the end of uh, how the test was won, where we just discover the last forty minutes has been a complete waste of time. It's all about. It's all about the gag at the end. Uh, but yeah, like you say, it's um, he's putting the fear of God into her. It's um, yeah, it's, it's dark, but uh, I like it.
4: The fear of Wells, anyway. But he yeah. did rescue Emma, so I think he maybe was there to do that as well.
6: I, I love it when Sam gets kind of mean, though. It was really funny. Mm.
4: Yeah, I, let's put it there. It didn't take me out of the episode. I just found it as an odd choice to end the episode, especially when you think of, you know, they could have had that dramatic family moment on the cliff face with Emma coming up and her and Hank hugging and kissing. And I mean, in a lot of other episodes, that would have been the natural leap out point. So the fact that they had this this coda at the end, I wonder if the episode was just a little short or, you know, if, if they just felt like they wanted to explore it a little bit more. But I just found that well-seen completely superfluous.
6: <laughs> I think they were just trying to end it like a comedy episode um, because so many episodes end with like, here's the heartfelt moment. They're hugging and Sam leaps out mid-hug. So I think it was just sort of a, a comedic thing to end it with. And and often they do have sort of secondary elements to the leap that he's got to end with
4: mm-hmm. mm. yeah again it just it didn't strike me that the butchie alexandra relationship was a key element to this episode in any way so it again it just it came out of left field from me. allison I, I don't think you're wrong i think that's exactly what they were going for i just don't think that the episode built up to it effectively that's all
5: now well, while we're talking about the the final scene in the cliff can i i don't want to break the cardinal rule but can i tease next week or t- tease the next episode sure because i and, and this is a reasonably well-known fact because um scott's talked about it in a few interviews but that um that cliff climb was pretty dangerous and during that scene he dislocated his foot
6: is that how it happened
5: that's how it happened and that will be discussed again in uh, in a future episode of quantum leap okay um so you're saying
4: the injury carries on because of the tight shooting schedule
5: well, yeah. Scott's injury carries on. Sam's injury has to happen uh, on camera, right? So that'd be interesting to see how they
4: handle that. But I guess yeah. you know, real life, real life happens. So you yeah. gotta, you mm-hmm. gotta throw it in. So, mm. so guys, I think I've hit everything I want to hit with this episode. Any other thoughts from you guys that we haven't touched upon?
5: Uh, no, not from, not from me.
6: Yeah, I think I covered everything I wanted to.
4: All right. So why don't we, why don't we just end by answering a question? Was this. Good Quantum Leap. Is this a good episode of Quantum Leap, not only for the episode itself, but for what Quantum Leap is supposed to accomplish as a series?
6: Um, I think that even though it's not one that people often remember or bring up, uh, I thought it was good. I I thought it covered a lot of themes that the show's covered uh, in other episodes. Uh, I thought they did it pretty solidly. I, I didn't really have a problem with it.
5: Yeah and I think I I opened this episode saying I I found it watchable having spent some time talking to you guys about it. I, I I'm warming to it a little bit more. I think I'm seeing some of the more positives about it. I I never had an issue with the episode, but um it it yeah, it, it doesn't really stand out for me as an amazing one, but it it does have a few really really solid moments.
4: And I'm going to agree with you on that, Matt. I found it in my memory anyway, to be a middling episode, just sort of your average run-of-the-mill Quantum Leap episode. And I got so much more of an appreciation on my rewatches and found that there is a lot more going on here than I had first suspected. And like I said, just very solidly crafted with the music, reflecting the characters and a lot of just the weird different subtexts and just how complex they managed to make Hank's character. Um, Hmm. both sympathetic and reprehensible. So Hmm. for that, I think there was a lot to go back to. It wasn't like, oh, I have to watch this again. It's like, oh, wait, I'm still seeing more stuff in this. And (laughs) for that, I think it makes it good Quantum Leap because it does give you stuff to think about. For sure. uh, Yeah, that's one of the things that the show is, it's a hallmark of the show, and I think that they really nailed it with this one. So uh, so I'm going to go with uh, Thumbs Up, definitely. All right, um, so... Now that we have said what we had to say, uh, we're going to throw it to a break. And uh, when we come back, we will uh, be hearing from Mr. Tom McTeague. Stay tuned, everybody.
0: in Space Professional Audio Production.
3: Whether you are just starting out, a seasoned professional, or anywhere in between, we can help you sound your best. If you're a beginner, we will help you find the right equipment that suits your needs, talk you through the hardware setup and software settings, And we'll share tips and tricks and give you feedback that will make you a success.
0: Baron Space Professional Audio Production.
3: When you get started with us, all you have to do is simply upload the recorded audio files to our Dropbox and let us do the rest.
0: Baron Space Professional Audio
3: Production. Your podcast will be produced by top-notch audio producers based in the United States with years of experience. You can get to know your producer and have an ongoing dialogue with them about your show no more tech support nightmares
0: baron space professional audio production
3: enjoy your free time your quality time being a podcaster is fun what isn't fun is giving up your family time nights and weekends or the time you need to make your first million or that next million editing your own show is just not an efficient use of your time let the experts do it.
0: in Space Professional Audio Production.
3: We have many different packages to choose from. We can simply return your fully produced audio to you or take care of the entire posting process. We will help you apply to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and more. Our experts want to help you be a successful podcaster. Let us be part of your team.
0: Baron Space Professional Audio Production.
3: Contact us today and receive a free personalized consultation call. Email us at baronspace at gmail.com or go to baronspace.com slash production for more details. Time is the most precious thing we have. Don't waste it.
1: I know actors that. Uh... Have looked at quantum leap and just said it's an actor's dream because you have and you pick up a script and you can be anybody yeah. in a given week it's always different and i'm almost always challenged in one way or another in each episode so it can be uh something that i've never done before so i have to go out and learn how to hang from a trapeze or it can just be a whole uh, i'm a woman and i've just been raped and i'm in a you know a whole episode about rape and that's a whole another kind of challenge so you know, to be able to work at something that you love and then be challenged all the time and, and be asked to be creative almost every day, that, that's really great. I would think that playing all the different characters that you have on Quantum Leaf would be tremendous therapy for you. <laughs> <laughs> we can go a million different ways here, but you've played more than a few women. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. does that taught you about yourself? Uh, you know, it is great therapy. Everything is, is great therapy. The message of the show, if there is a message to me, is that. Uh, We all can learn from living a little bit of everybody else's life. Um, The old expression of, you know, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. I'm doing that literally. I've learned so much about being a woman. And I know it sounds silly to say, but, but in the beginning, it was all about how am I going to survive being in these clothes all day? Because it's totally painful. You know, if everything hurts, you feel like you're wrapped up and constricted, depending on the time period. And you know, I'm going home and my wife is just laughing. She's, you know, remember that every time I talk about being cold? Well, tomorrow when you're in the nylons on the back lot and, <laughs> and the wind is blowing and that's all you got on, you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And, of course, she's right. And we've had some just really wonderful shows that have exposed me to a lot of different situations. And, and it's just been, it's been incredible. And that helps you as an actor. Is there a durability factor uh, as an actor, especially what you're doing uh, now on your series? I haven't missed a day of work yet uh, since we started the series. I did a show, uh, one whole episode with a dislocated foot, and we just rewrote this script, and I, I fell at the beginning of that episode, and I <laughs> limped it, uh, for a while, and the next episode I still wasn't well, so we shot me in the leg at the beginning. Um, but I, I, you know, I, you just have to keep going, and uh, it, it helps to be in shape.
0: This is Ann Walker, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast.
4: Okay, everyone, we're back. And uh, guess what, guys? You know what time it is? Time to speak to Mr. Tom McTeague.
6: All right. I'm really excited to hear this interview because uh, I'm familiar with Tom McTeague from Baywatch. He was a main character for a season, <laughs> and uh, it's something I talk about on my own show. So I'm looking forward to listening to it and uh, hope everyone else enjoys.
4: Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you played Blake's sycophantic yes-man Calloway in the classic Christmas episode, A Little Miracle. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got started acting and what led to getting that role on Quantum Leap?
7: Uh, Well, uh, I got into acting in uh, college. I had done a workshop uh, my senior year in high school uh, with an improv group in Seattle and I really enjoyed it. So I went uh when I went to college, um, theater was sort of on my mind but I wasn't taking any theater classes. And then my English teacher suggests I audition for a role that was available in Equus, which the college was producing. And I auditioned for uh the role of Alan Strang, which was the lead character uh, in this show, and I got it.
4: That's, that's, that's a heavy role. <laughs> For your first time out, that's a really yeah, heavy right? role,
7: huh? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when you're new at anything, you sort of, um, you don't really know what you're, what you're jumping into, but I, I knew it had a nude scene in it. So when they told me I got the role, which is a plum role, uh, I said, okay, I'll let you know in a couple of days, uh, <laughs> <her> jaws <laughs> sort of hit the floor. And then, um, I called my mom and I said, Hey mom, I got the part in this production and, and it's a good part, but it's got a nude scene in it. So I don't know if I want to do it. What do I do? And and you know, my mom was really bright and she said, just get a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it. And on one side, write the good things that could come of it. And on the other side, write the bad things that could come of it. And the only bad thing I could come up with was that people would laugh and point at my back side <laughs> and <be> like, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't care. Um, and, and I loved it. I did the, I did the show and I loved it. And it was uh well received crit- critically. And then I sort of declared theater as a major and did that for two years. And, At that point, I was pretty sure I wanted to be an actor, so I moved to New York and studied at uh, uh, Herbert Berghoff Studios in New York, and then got homesick, and um, came home about a year and a half later, and and, uh, just started working in the regional theater in Seattle, and that's how it happened. Part of my rationale for, for starting professionally in Seattle was because it was a much less competitive environment, so... I was able to uh, get my union cards and start working a little bit more quickly than I would have had I been, you know, competing in New York.
4: Understood. Now, when you wrote down the pros and the cons of doing Equus... Was one of the cons, aside from people pointing and laughing, that, you know, everybody you know and maybe people in your family would see you in the all together? And I ask that because I know actors, that they, they have to sort of face that as part of what they do for a living. And how do you reconcile those things? It, to me, it just seems, seems like it, dicey. It would be dicey.
7: <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's weird to be naked in front of a room full of closed people. But the weirdest part about it is becoming naked. Once you're nude, it doesn't matter. You know, it's all dangling out for everybody to see and, <laughs> and admire or not, you know, getting naked really hard because you sense the anticipation of the audience, you know. So going from clothed to unclothed is a tough transition. But once you're unclothed, it's like, eh, whatever, you know, here yeah. I am. <laughs> um, and I didn't, I didn't care whether my family saw me or not. I mean, I knew that the body of that play was so solid that you know it, the play is the thing, and 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 uh, the nude scene was you know incidental to the rest of the show. So
4: I got you, I got you.
7: Know. you. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was doing a, a stage adaptation of Deep Throat, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where there was pretty nude. Pretty much all the time. It was just a scene in a in a much larger body of work. So
4: I got you. Well, let's steer it back to the family friendly. We're talking about a, a Christmas episode, right? <laughs> how did, sure. How did, right. How, yeah. how did you go from uh, from from Seattle to LA? And uh, what was the process of getting work on TV in the nineties? I guess in the eighties at that point too. How did how did you uh, how did you how did you break in and how did you uh, wind up wind up with uh, with QL?
7: Well, when I was uh, living in Seattle uh, and working in regional theater, I had I discovered stand-up, and more as a fan than as a comedian. I just I wandered into a comedy club, and I I think at that point I was very broken-hearted from a relationship that had gone south, and I wandered into this stand-up comedy club, and for an hour and a half I was transported. You know, I forgot about my broken heart and my betrayal and all, you know, I mean, it was just sort of this magical thing. So I became something of a comedy groupie, just hanging around comedians and talking to them and, you know, wanting to know how they did this incredible thing they did. And then I started writing for them and then I started performing. And uh, after about, oh gosh, I don't know, four or five years of doing stand-up in Seattle, I felt like I was ready to be seen on a larger stage so i moved to los angeles and shortly after moving to los angeles i met a another comic who said who's your agent and i said i don't have an agent and he said well call my agent you're great so i called his agent and uh they signed me that day and and from that agent i got another agent and then you know stand-up comedy is a really good way to showcase yourself to a larger group of people than than simply being an actor is sometimes, you know? So for me, stand-up was a way to get agents, and once I got agents, I got auditions, and that was one of the auditions. That, the Quantum Leap audition was one of the auditions I went on and was lucky enough to get the part. But, you know, it's interesting looking back on it because at the time, I mean, Quantum Leap was a fairly successful show, but it wasn't what it is today, in terms of uh, really devoted following. I was working in Vegas, I don't know, six months ago, and one of the guys that I was working with said, can we just have lunch? I just want to talk to you about you know what you've done. And I said, sure. And I guess overnight he Googled me and up popped Quantum Leap, and all he wanted to talk about for the entire lunch was me being on Quantum Leap. He was like a rabid Quantum Leap fan. And uh, that was my first even awareness that there was this yeah. <laughs> really devoted following to this show that I did so many years ago, you know. But that episode seems to seems to hold up, and they show it every year because I get about 18 cents. <laughs> yeah, I know it's going on.
4: Well tell us tell us um what the audition process was like and uh if if you don't mind, you know, your time on the set. I know you got to work with Scott and also extensively with your fellow guest star Charles Rocket. So uh so so Dish.
7: I don't remember the audition process and I don't remember booking a job. I remember being on the set and doing it and yeah, it was just kind of fun. You know, I mean at that point I hadn't done a lot of work, so uh, I was on a big soundstage, and Scott Bakula was an incredibly nice guy. Dean was uh, a little bit more reserved, and Charlie Rocket I'd known because he had done work on uh, Saturday Night Live, and and now was simply just plying, you know, his acting chops in L.A. And so we'd we'd cross paths on auditions and things, and um, we actually knew each other for years. Post that in L.A., it was sort of a a way for us to become friends, you know. And then he died. You know, you know, mm-hmm. he knew that, which is really uh, tragic. I mean, it was just really sad the way he went out, but good guy. And so on the set for, I'm going to say, four, four days, something like that, and shoot some here and go back to your trailer and shoot some there and go back to your trailer. And, and uh, it was just a lot of fun you know but you know it's so many years ago and it was a small part i when i was first approached i was like god what did i even do on quantum leap so i had to go back and watch the episode i was like ah oh, yeah i remember that that was great but it's it's a long time ago you know so my recollections are not fresh
4: well, that that's fine. I mean, and that's not uncommon with uh, many of the actors we talk to. It's understandable, too, because it's a job you did, what, 30 years ago for a couple of days, and you've moved on, and, you know, there's a whole contingent of uh, fanboys and girls that haven't. So we're going to pick your brain, and we'd love to hear what you have to say anyway. Okay. I just wanted to, if you can remember a little bit about the dynamic, because one of the things that struck me about A Little Miracle was it was ostensibly the Christmas Carol episode, right? But – Right. your your scenes with Charles and with Scott were some of the funniest in the entire series. And I don't know that it was written that way, or if you guys just played off of each other naturally that way, because I know that Charles had a comedic background, you're a comedian and Scott seemed to be, you know, killing it in, in those scenes. Is that something that you recall like discussing and bringing to those scenes because of your background or was it just there on the page and you were able to enact it? I and, mean,
7: I think it was on the page, and if it wasn't on the page, it was certainly in the the producer's minds uh, that they wanted it to be sort of that, at least that relationship to be sort of tongue in cheek, the, the sort of overworked, underappreciated assistant who always had big ideas and was full of aspirations, and Charles would always shoot me down, and, and um, you know, it, and Scott has great comedic timing anyway. I mean, he's one of those effortless guys that you 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 watch his work in that series and in other things over the years and he's just so easy on screen you can see why he became the success that he did but i i'm sure that the reason that i was hired for that was because of my comedic skills and probably something comedic that i brought to that audition that maybe other people didn't see in the script that was it's pretty much why i get hired you know? right right well because people <laughs> people write phone books and i read it in the specific i remember going in for an audition for a soap opera and they were howling and it was it was basic dry soap opera stilted dialogue and they thought it was hilarious and they went thanks that was one of the best auditions we've ever seen you're not right for this part <laughs> and, uh,
5: hollywood know. right
7: <laughs> yeah you know so You know, you kind of, you go with your strengths and and I'm really pleased that that it uh, turned out that way. You know, uh, Charles had great timing and he was a fun foil to work with Um, and uh, Scott the same way.
4: Yeah, well, if we can branch out a little bit, I mean, you went from uh, Christmas in New York on Quantum Leap to Eternal Summer on Baywatch where you had a regular role as Harvey Miller. So what was it like to be on, you know, the hottest show of the 90s?
7: um it was fun you know I, it was uh a little bit thankless as an actor you know because you go into any project thinking i'm going to bring value to this project and on 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 Baywatch you were uh exposed really quickly f- to the idea that you weren't the star that TNA was the star <laughs> so you'd spend you know you'd spend they'd spend Ten minutes, you know, you you rehearse a scene and then you'd block the scene and then they'd shoot the scene and they'd go get it, great, check the gate, moving on, and then they'd spend two hours fluffing, you know, fluffing boobs and making sure bathing suits were as high cut as they possibly could be and doing close ups on, you know, sweat trickling down somebody's cleavage and it, you know, but it was it was fun, it was good, uh, good experience and. David Hasselhoff was a really nice guy to work with, and uh, yeah, you got to go to the beach every day, and it was a regular paycheck, so it yeah. was fun.
4: You can't you can't get much better than that, and you get to hassle the right? So,
7: yes, there's a video somewhere of me tweaking his nipples. I I don't know where that is, but it's out there
4: somewhere. Uh, I'm sure that the the outtakes from Baywatch, there might be some some pretty funny, pretty racy stuff. It's a whole different world from Quantum Leap, huh?
7: Right. Yeah. It's not. It, it wasn't. Terribly serious. Baywatch did not take itself, uh, as seriously as it appeared to on the screen. You know, everybody knew what we were shooting and they knew what the audience was and they knew what the, you know, what, what the demographic was and why people were watching. And, and so for the time that I was on the show, it was, it was fun and it was a lark, but, um, you know, they needed to move on too. So I left and Billy left and Erica left. And then they brought on uh, Pamela, and that's when it it really jumped the shark. But um, boy, it, it it was a a big show, and it was you know it's fun to be a part of something that's, that's that iconic.
4: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, can we discuss some of your films?
7: Some of them. I I think I've only done uh, a couple, but yeah, let's discuss whichever. <laughs> well, let me tell
4: you one that really intrigued me was uh, Boyhood, Richard Linklater's Boyhood. And I know that that was shot. He shot that over 10 or 12 years. And um, can, can you tell me what your involvement was with that project? It was so unique and what the shooting process was like.
7: Yeah, I got a call from my agent and they said that there's this movie that's being shot and it's Richard Linklater. And I, hadn't, I wasn't terribly familiar with his work, although I did watch Days and Confused. So I knew I knew he had chops, but they they also said this film has been uh, in production for seven years. And immediately I thought, oh, Christ, this is just somebody's, you know, vanity project. If it's been shooting for seven years, it's not going anywhere. It's going to go straight to video. And sure, I'll audition for it, you know, but there was zero pressure because I didn't know anything about the project. It was very hush hush while it was in production. And so I went in for the audition um, and was very loose, and we improved a scene of um, a the boy who played the the boy mm-hmm. um, improved a scene, and uh, it worked good, and got a call that i had that I had gotten the role. and uh, when we got the script, the script was very much the improved scene that we had done, and uh I only shot for a day. They shot over 12 years, but they only shot one week a year. So they did one week of shooting and then I think two weeks of pre-production and maybe a week of post-production on on either side of that. So everybody had to come back every year for 12 years just for a week of shooting. So it was a very tight shooting schedule. You know, Uh, it wasn't uh, relaxed at all because everybody knew they had to get the shots in in the week and then bang, you get the shot, then you move to the next scene, you get the shot, you move to the next scene. Uh, But excellent crew. um, And Richard is such a good director, you know, such a good director. And it's a a really worthwhile project. I think it's a, a worthwhile movie to watch. One of the things that's so interesting about it is for me to, you know, it's like trying to write down your life story. There's so much of you. What do you use to tell the story? And for Richard Linklater to have a boy's life, and you know, from the time he was six until the time he was eighteen, to use as fodder for this film, how you winnow that down to a cohesive narrative that goes from point A to point B, uh, I thought was just an incredibly Herculean task, And, and I think he did a
1: really good job. But
7: the scene that I was in is in the middle of the movie it's it's a long scene and a short scene and it's pretty much all me doing a monologue or a substantial chunk of the dialogue with Eller in a dark room and I'm giving him a lecture I'm his photography teacher and the scene is somewhat pivotal because he winds up becoming a photographer and it was also one of those scenes that sort of distilled the plot of the movie. So it became the scene that was in every single commercial, uh, for the movie and all the trailers for the movie. And then when it aired, uh, when it, when it was nominated for an Academy Award at the awards, it was the clip they showed. So it's, it, for, for only being, you know, a three and a half minute segment of a two hour movie, um, it got a lot of notice.
4: And that must have been nice to see, right?
7: I was really proud of it. Yeah, I'm still proud of it to this day. I, I think it, I think that it really holds up well, and um, yeah, and and you know, and it was it's one of those things that it just felt so lucky to be involved in. You know, I don't know how chances like that happen to people, but it's nice to to have an opportunity to you know you 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 bang your head against the door for years in Hollywood, and then after you know a couple of decades. You move to Texas because, you know, things are slowing down and that's where you want to be. And all of a sudden, you're you're handed a a, a, a plum role in an Academy Award-nominated film. And it's, I feel lucky.
4: Well, I know that you've done series. I know that you've done movies. But it seems to me that your heart is still in stand-up. And I was doing my research on you. When I typed your name to Google, the autocomplete gave me options like Tom McTeague, Cat Puke, and... Tom McTeague chicken pot pie. <laughs> <laughs> so
5: right.
4: I can only assume those are bits. Do you care to elaborate?
7: Well, the, the yeah, I still do. I still do stand up. Um, it's been a, a, a mainstay of my professional life for 35 years. And uh, I still love performing, you know, so I, I work in Vegas a couple of times a year and um, uh, I work on cruise ships. Uh, And occasionally I'll do a a club here or there, but um, yeah, the cat puke, the cat puke bit is that. And, and uh, I can't remember the other day. Oh, the chicken pot pie. Hell's angels. Yeah. There's a CD that I have uh, in fairly uh, regular rotation on uh, Sirius XM. so. I guess the, the, those are the those are the bits that that people remember and google and want to buy. And so um that's why those those pop up, but I'm still very active as a stand-up.
4: I read that you also do like corporate gigs. Can you tell us what what that's
7: like? I do corporate gigs, but I do corporate gigs very rarely um uh, because there's a whole lot of dancing around making sure that you're politically correct and that to me is sort of the math is stand-up comedy. And you know, I'm sure that there are clean PC comedians that would say, yeah, but the money's so good. Well, the money's really good, but I think it's more fun to be true to why I think that thing is funny than to go back and have to re-edit it so that, you know, margin accounting doesn't feel nah. like I was acting sexist. <laughs> so, you know, you know. And so, um, I mean, my, my standup is not particularly dirty, but it wasn't built to be delivered in a, PC environment or a grade school, you know. So, yeah, it's an adult show built for adults. Gotcha. Uh, and it seems sometimes like corporate America is not populated by adults. So.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you doing these days? Are you still acting?
7: Um, I, I do act. I'm. Uh, I stay fairly busy doing voiceover work. Um, I have a home studio, so uh, I do voiceover work. At least the audition portion of that through my home studio. And, uh, I tour about 15 or 20 weeks a year doing stand up primarily on, on ships. Um, and then I've got this beautiful quiet life with a great girlfriend and kids. And, and, uh, you know, for the last week I've been gardening. So, uh, between stand up and voiceover and residuals and the occasional, uh new acting role that comes along uh I stay as busy as i want to be and you know i'm i'm i kind of like in my career these days to being a trapdoor spider you know I don't look very hard for work, but when it comes by, I
1: snatch it
7: so yeah i'm i did an american crime uh, an episode of american crime last year and and uh when things are available I do them the friends here who produce uh you know, web series and webisodes and things like that, and uh, always happy to work with them. But it's not work; it's more more fun. I'm really honored that people like the work that I've done and, and continue to watch it and contact me about it. And, and uh, uh, it's been a it's been a fun career, and it continues. And nobody's more surprised about that than me. Maybe my dad, but he passed away. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's just it's, it's a great job.
4: Can our fans find you anywhere
7: online? Uh, com. I'm currently rebuilding my site, so give me about two weeks before anybody clicks on that. And, <laughs> uh, hopefully, they'll be able to pull up a, a page that doesn't look like it was built 20 years ago. Um, so, yeah, TomMcTeague.com, and they can uh, friend me on Facebook. Uh, they can find me on Twitter and Instagram, so... I'm out there. I've got some something of a social media presence, but not a bunch. I don't. I don't uh, work very hard at maintaining that. Which seems to be the you know. I mean, if you get a million Twitter followers, you're a star, and if you don't, then you're not. So, um, yeah, have them follow me on Twitter. I think I got 500 followers right now.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
4: Maybe we'll get it up to 506. Uh, you know. Uh, perfect! Perfect. There you go. There you go. Well, we'll put links for all of those uh, social media accounts and your website on the Quantum Leap podcast website at quantumleappodcast.com. So everybody listening can check there. And now if we can just get back to Quantum Leap, if you don't mind, you had mentioned before that when you were on the show, it was, I guess, fairly popular, but it wasn't anything like it is now. Now, Aside from the story that you told, can you relate instances where you have seen the show and your role on the show grow in popularity over the years?
7: I, I just know that uh, it's one of those television series that was good enough to stand the test of time, which is a huge compliment to anything that happens on TV. Most of it uh, is, is so dated so quickly for something to last as long as Quantum Leap has with a fan base uh, as engaged and rabid as it is, I think it's a huge testament to the quality of that of that show. It was well-written, well-conceived, and uh, uh, really well-executed. So kudos to everybody involved in it and the fans for recognizing that.
4: Well, thank you very much, Tom, for spending time with us here on the Quantum Leap Podcast.
7: My pleasure. Thanks so much.
4: All right, Allison, so there you have it. I mean, your Baywatch uh, wish was granted. He did talk about <laughs> Osama Baywatch. I mean, it was pretty fun to talk to him about that. Very chill guy, as you guys heard in the interview, and just a very wry sense of humor. I had a good time talking to him. So thank you very much, Tom, for uh, enlightening us, not only with your time on Quantum Leap, but uh, giving Allison what she wanted as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. All right, so we've heard from Tom McTeague. So now it's time for Hayden segment quantum deep
8: oh, she's a little run away and now she's in quantum deep With the news that the TV series Roseanne is returning for a new season after being off the air for 20 years, I've recently been re-watching the original series. In its day, Roseanne was an absolute powerhouse of a show, and paralleled Quantum Leap in many ways. Not unlike Quantum Leap, Roseanne was completely unique in concept, being told from the point of view of a mother of a working class white trash family. It was also not unlike Quantum Leap in the fact that it pushed the envelope by dealing with serious issues that were not talked about much on television at the time, such as depression, domestic violence, homosexuality and abortion. Also like Quantum Leap, Roseanne had a very unexpected and disappointing ending. And of course, with the recent news that Don Bellisario has written a new Quantum Leap movie, it is possible that, like Roseanne, we may see Quantum Leap back either on the big or the small screen sometime in the near future. Roseanne was not above breaking the fourth wall and making fun of itself, especially when something was going on behind the scenes that they wanted to put an inside joke about in. One such example is the replacement and re-replacement and re-replacement of the actress who played Becky. In Season 5, Lisey Goranson abruptly left the show to attend university, and her character was written out of the show by, ironically enough, running away and eloping with her boyfriend Mark. In Season 6, Becky and Mark returned, with Becky now played by Sarah Chalk.
7: I cannot believe that they
5: replaced that Darren. (laughs) But it was a
0: hit show. They knew they could get away with anything. (sighs) Well, I like the second Darren much better.
8: Lisi reprised her role at the start of season eight.
2: Here, Dad. That's all I could find. Where in the hell have you been? (laughs) Don't yell at me, Mother. I was getting this. Well, it took you long enough. Seems like you've been gone for three years. Where the hell have you been? <laughs>
6: Why does everyone keep saying that to me?
8: Sarah would occasionally return whenever there was a scheduling conflict
6: with Lacey. Did I hear right? We're going on vacation? Ladies and gentlemen, the role of Becky, originally played by Lisey Goranson, then by Sarah Chalk, then by Lisey Goranson, will be played this evening
1: by Sarah Chalk. Taking of flash photographs or use of recording devices is strictly prohibited.
2: Disney World? I've
0: always wanted to go there. Aren't you glad that you're here this week?
8: And Sarah permanently returned to the role in the final season. If that wasn't bizarre enough, Both Lisey and Sarah will be permanent cast members in the Revival series, playing two entirely separate characters.
6: It is so great to finally meet you. And I can see why you
2: picked me. I mean, look at us. We could be the same person.
0: Oh my God. It is like looking in the mirror before I put my makeup on.
8: With the recent news of Don Bellisario having written a Quantum Leap movie, and with Roseanne having so many parallels to Quantum Leap, the situation did make me wonder whether a new incarnation of Quantum Leap could work with other actors instead of Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell. At this point in time, we don't know anything about what's planned for the movie, whether it's meant to be a continuation of the series as we know it, with the original characters and actors or as an expansion of the universe, or if it's intended to reboot the franchise with a new cast to play the same characters. Quantum Leap was always intended to be an anthology, following the adventures of one scientist who, in each episode, is thrown into a different situation in a different time period. The very concept of an anthology implies that we need one main actor to be put into the different situations, not just any actor, though. This actor needs to be talented, versatile, committed, and willing to attempt anything. Don Belisario really lucked out getting Scott Bakula in the lead role. As he was incredibly hard working, he could do anything and was willing to do anything. If the movie was to reboot the franchise... We would need a brand new actor that is as equally talented, versatile, committed, and willing to attempt anything to take on the role of Sam. This is not an easy task, but probably not impossible. In the case of Al, we need an actor with great comic timing, but also with the ability to dig really deep and be able to deliver heart-wrenching dramatic moments. And what made the show so special was the chemistry between the two main actors, which really made you believe that they were the best of friends. We would need this to be replicated as well. At this point in time, I couldn't pick any other actors who I could visualise in Quantum Leap's lead roles, and there will always be the people who say the original is always the best and that we shouldn't try to fix what isn't broken. But I would still give it a chance. However... With the possibility of the movie being used as a completely clean slate for the franchise, it does make me wonder whether other options are possible. The difficulty in trying to permanently recast such iconic roles is that we need to find the perfect fit. Finding these actors and getting what is needed out of them is incredibly difficult. It's hard to put my finger on exactly what this X factor I'm talking about is, but you know it when you see it. Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell had it. If the right fit was found, then we would hope that a connection would be made with the audience. And once that hurdle is passed, then one would be able to focus on the storytelling. Assuming the cast issues were sorted, then the most die-hard fans would probably appreciate an attempt be made to try to stick to the original concept and rules that were developed in the show. However, with the possibility that this movie will be a complete reboot of the series then, in fact, we don't need to follow every concept and every rule that was established in the original series verbatim. It can be done. The roles of Sam and Al were replaced in the Quantum Leap fan film A Leap to Die For, which I highly recommend, by the way, and on the whole were believable in the roles. But that was a creation by fans for fans. In the case of a feature film, I think we would need some big names to try to bring new fans into the franchise. Of course, Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell could be brought back for a cameo role. If we recall how Quantum Leap works, Sam's body, mind and soul are transported in space and time. He takes the place of somebody in the past, and that person is transported to the future. Sam is surrounded by physical aura of the person he has replaced, so that he looks and sounds like that person, and in the majority of cases, is relatively unnoticed living as that person, until he is able to correct a mistake that was made in that person's life at that time. One possibility is that the movie could take on the point of view of the people around Sam, where we would also see him as the person he has replaced. The main advantage to taking this route would be the monetary savings. Without a main star, it would be much cheaper to pay the multiple actors for their guest roles than it would be to pay for a single actor to take on the lead role. If funding was an issue that was preventing the movie from getting off the ground, then I would be happy to try this, if it meant we got to see something. However, if money was not an issue, then I would much prefer they did not take this route, as it could get very confusing trying to keep track of who Sam was, especially if there were multiple leaps in the space of the movie, and also the fact that it goes against the basic premise of Quantum Leap, that it is all of Sam, body, mind, and spirit – who replaces the host, and it's not just his essence which has inhabited somebody else's body. It would also be that much more difficult from a storytelling perspective, as it would be difficult for the audience to make a basic connection with the main character. Plus, we would need each actor to act similarly enough so that it is believable that inside they are all the same person. Though I guess any noticeable differences could be hand-waved away by the concept of mind-merging. For the Quantum Leap purists, nothing but the originals will do. However, Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell are getting on in years. I seriously doubt that Scott would be able to handle the physical demands of the character. From what we hear, Dean Stockwell's health hasn't been the greatest lately either. It would simply be too demanding on either of them to have them pick up where the series left off. However, there is an option that could please even the most diehard fans. Some movies are filmed entirely from the point of view of the protagonist. Perhaps this could be done in the case of Sam. There would not be any need to show Sam's physical body at all, and all mirror shots would still only show the Lee Ps. Scott Bakula could still provide the voice for Sam's character, and there again is a financial advantage in that it's much cheaper to only pay an actor for lending their voice for ADR than to have them physically on the screen as well. Again, it would still be difficult for the audience to make a connection with the main character, though, and worse, it would be much more difficult to shoot, and I doubt it could be possible to have any action scenes, let alone have them be believable. One final option we have has recently been shown to be viable thanks to one of the most recent films in the Star Wars universe, Rogue One. Set immediately before the events of the 1977 blockbuster A New Hope, There was a problem in that Peter Cushing, who portrayed one of the most formidable villains from that point in time, Grand Moff Tarkin, had passed away. However, the character lived to see another film, from CGI masks of Cushing's likeness being digitally augmented onto another actor's face. The same thing was also done so that Princess Leia could appear in the film as well, with Carrie Fisher's likeness, but at Leia's correct age in the timeline. It is possible that through similar CGI techniques, we could see Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell's images as Sam Beckett and Al Calavicci on our screens again. The CGI involved is extremely costly, and there are also moral and ethical questions on the horizon about just how much someone's likeness can be replicated, especially as neither actor can live forever but through CGI, their likeness could. Would Scott Bakula or Dean Stockwell ever give their permission for this? The news of the script for the Quantum Leap movie having been completed has certainly raised a lot of questions. It has also raised hope. The biggest question I want answered, though, is if Roseanne gets a reboot after 20-plus years, then just when will Quantum Leap get theirs?
1: see the one you used to see From 88 to 93 But Sarah came and took her place Because she had a similar face. That's like on TV
0: But they're Becky's Nearly identical Becky's all the way One pair of matching actors But only one part to play
1: where Sarah loved that dopey mark And wound up in a trailer park
0: Our Lacey shouts and Lacey squeals She wants a house that's not on wheels What a crazy bear Still they are Becky's Nearly identical Becky's And you buy. find They walk alike They talk alike Abruptly leave the show alike You could lose your mind When Becky's Ain't to of a kind
4: I'm Christopher Philippus and it's time once again for the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings, where I tell you about all of the vintage radios that appear on Quantum Leap. And we've arrived at Runaway. And while there's a ton of music in this episode, there are no radios. You know, unless you count the car radio, which we don't. So that means a trip to the archives. So buckle up, because we're heading for Brooklyn. And call you Nona because it's time for a Quantum Leap Radio Settings first. Or maybe a Quantum Leap Radio Settings second. A second first? I don't know. But anyway, we're up to the episode Double Identity. And there is a radio in Double Identity, and it's notable for being the first radio on the show to have made a second appearance. It is none other than the 1952 RCA 3RF91 Woodland Radio that appeared in the previous episode how the test was won now you can see the woodland in don gino's attic when sam is talking to al he's dressed up as uh, frankie the hitman with his pink shirt and his bow tie and his bun. and you can also see it again in the same attic when sam is wrestling the gun away from don gino now you might remember as i told you last time that the woodland is a neat little set it's very distinctive And it's all about the tuning dial. It's got this giant round tuning dial in the front center of the speaker grill with these little appliques that come off the sides that make it look like an airplane coming right at you. And it's what brings this radio over the top because otherwise it's just another nondescript brown Bakelite box. But it's got that neat deco flair and it's instantly recognizable the second you see it on screen. And like I said, it was the second time we saw it on screen in Quantum Leap. It originally appeared in How the Test Was Won in Tess's living room, right over the top of the couch when Tess was passed out and Sam was trying to revive her. And bear with me because I have a theory here. How the Test Was Won took place in 1956 and Double Identity took place in 1965. So in my headcanon, this is the same radio. I mean, it was definitely the same prop, but in universe, I'm going to say it's the same radio. And here's how I reconciled that. You know, Tessa's ranch got very successful after she married the right guy and Sam leapt out and buddy Holly went on to sing Peggy Sue And once she got a little bit of bucks and she became like a cattle baron and a ranch baron, Tess decided to redecorate and she got rid of all the crappy radios that were strewn all about her house in favor of like a new 60s hi-fi set. And because of that, that radio went on the road. It went to a thrift shop and then somebody bought it and then uh, they had it in their apartment for a while and then somebody else bought it and they gave it to their son who had it in their bedroom. Then that kid got rid of it, but the person who got it next... They got this big break. They got this huge job offer in New York. And they took what they had with them. You know, everything they loved. Probably their 1960s version of whatever futon was back then. Their crummy little RCA woodland radio. Put it all in the back of a moving van and went on out to New York to make their name in the world. And as soon as the truck crossed into the borough... Primo and Segundo came and hijacked the truck and they sold all the stuff out of the back, but they couldn't get rid of this radio, so it wound up in the Don's attic because we're Italian and we're gangsters and that's what we do. We rob people. Oh, hey. But anyway, whether or not that story fits into your headcanon, it's still nice to see this neat little radio make another appearance on Quantum Leap. And since The Woodland came out in 1952, there's absolutely no anachronism with us finding it nestled away in a corner of Don Gino's attic in 1965. Now, if you want to see the woodland in all of its glory and every other radio that has appeared on Quantum Leap up until this episode, you can check them out on my website at com. That's D-E-F-L-I-P-S-I-D-E dot com. Just log on and look for the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings link. Until next time, paisans, this is your Quantum Leap Radio Guru, signing out.
3: Hayden, what do you think of uh, Runaway?
8: Uh... Um, not anywhere near my favorite, actually. Uh, I think, uh, I think if I was voting for the quantum leap idol, uh, this would end up in the bottom three. So (laughs) yeah, it's not to say that it's a bad episode. It's just, I really have to suspend my disbelief with this one. I really just cannot believe that the project at this stage in the series, you know, um, We've established a status quo. We've established that Ziggy's a supercomputer who knows everything and can access everything. I just can't believe that Al would not be able to work out what actually happened to Emma. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I just don't, I just can't believe it. And there are good points about it. I like the fact that they talked a little, that they touched upon feminism and women's liberation. And you know, the fact that they're every bit as valuable as men and um, have the right to feel some sort of life satisfaction and job satisfaction. But even so um, season five's liberation does that better.
1: Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm.
8: yeah, this one um, I just do not like all that much. And yeah, I, I just, have to suspend my disbelief to be able to even think anything's going on. The only kind of explanation that I could come up with as for why they couldn't figure out what actually happened to Emma is um, that after she did go missing, he says that the body wasn't found until the 1990s, which is fair enough. The only explanation I can come up with is that um, they must not have been able to identify the body and that they themselves had to compare the dental records and find that it was a match. So I, I could mm. think that that might take a little bit of time. But even then, they could have checked census records to find out that um, she hadn't run off with, uh, with the boyfriend. I can't remember his name now. Do you remember, What was the boyfriend's name?
3: Grass is greener on the other side.
8: Yeah. I mean, they could have checked census records and found, all right, well, she hasn't ended up shacking up with this guy and living with him or marrying him. So, And if they couldn't find her anywhere, then they must think, well, why can't we find anything? Has something else happened? But no. So yeah, I I just don't like the episode all that much for that reason, even (laughs) though it does have a lot of good points. Like I'll never say that there's a bad episode of Quantum Leap. This one is just towards the bottom of my uh, of my favorites list.
3: That explanation does yeah. kind of make sense. Like if they had to connect the dots, if Project Quantum Leap had to go and find out all the records and go, okay, does this match this? Oh, that's what happened. That makes sense. Uh, to me, I was telling myself that Al just uh, assumed that she had run off because of uh, his mother running off and he didn't want that to happen. So he didn't even bother having anybody back at Project Quantum Leap checking it, you know?
8: Mm. Uh, yeah, and that's uh, very unprofessional of Al. Mm. Um, but having said that, I did want to touch upon something else, and this kind of leads into it. Do you remember when we did the Black on White on Fire show and I made the little mini um, the little mini episode of Quantum Leap about marriage equality for Absolutely. the same-sex marriage?
3: Absolutely. I had to edit it.
8: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, well, um, Aaron Moss sent a little bit of feedback about the episode. Okay. Saying it took him a little bit of time to think about whether or not Al would have that kind of prejudice. And um, the reason that I wrote it was because at the time in Australia, we were going through a postal survey about marriage equality, whether or not the law should be changed. So I thought, well, I'd write down my thoughts, just hopefully, someone might be listening and someone might uh, take the time to see things from outside of their own point of view. Uh, So that's the reason why I did it. Um, Good news. It actually passed and it's now been legislated. So fantastic. And uh, I was very happy. I've got um, some gay relatives who will now be able to get married. Their their date is in the very near future.
3: Awesome. I I do remember uh, that news and that was very exciting news to hear. As the states are moving backwards, the other countries are moving forward.
8: So that's good to know. Exactly. But I did just want to point out to Aaron that uh, I I do think that Al probably would have had that sort of prejudice because we saw him feeling like gays shouldn't be in the military. We saw that in Running for Honor. And so I thought even though Al is a very good person, but um, he's not a perfect person. He has his flaws and uh unfortunately in the scenario i came up with one person did have to have that kind of viewpoint and uh al seemed more likely to be the <laughs> to be the one who would lean that way than sam so but uh people who have that viewpoint aren't bad people um i just um think that they need to maybe open their minds to at least hear another viewpoint and um and yeah, that's basically what I wanted to write in, in the episode. I
3: think uh, Al's character probably would have thought like you had written him back then. But I think uh, us knowing the character of Al as we do, I think by now in the year 2018, he would have changed his mind completely.
8: Yeah, I think so too. So, So, yeah. All right. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if you have any other feedback, but I wanted to provide some feedback to Aaron's feedback. So. Cool.
3: Yeah, it's always good to answer uh, specific feedback. Uh, there's one thing I want to know, Hayden. Yes. Hayden,
8: do you have any trivia for us? <laughs> I certainly do. All right. Well, according to writer of the episode Paul Brown, the cliff at the end of the episode is representative of the 1951 book Catcher in the Rye. Mm. Um, have you ever read Catcher in the Rye? Uh, uh, no. <laughs> I haven't either. I do know it was banned for a long time because apparently the, um, the per- one person who read it felt inspired to kill John Lennon from that.
3: Well, that, that's a silly reason to ban a book because there's not many more John Lennons left.
8: Exactly. Yeah. But um, it always makes me laugh thinking about that book because <laughs> uh, I think of the South Park episode where they have to read the book think there's nothing obscene in it. Why was it banned? And they decide to write their own obscene banned book. (laughs) What a funny episode that was.
3: (laughs) So guns don't kill people. Books kill people.
8: Well, people with books and guns tend to kill people, I find.
3: And mental disorders.
8: Yeah. And bullets. Yes. I I think maybe we should disarm people of their bullets and their guns and their books. Yeah. And preferably disarm them of their mental illness, too. Right. So it, get them it should to the all, doctor with some tender-loving medication. If,
3: if anything, start off with banning bullets. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good idea.
8: Yeah. All right. Uh, well, another bit of trivia. Scott Bakula dislocated his foot during the time of filming this episode. He recalled feeling very stupid as he still needed to climb the mountain with a woman on his back. Mm-hmm. And uh, there had to be a very hasty rewrite to the next episode which was to be filmed, uh, which was Future Boy. And uh, if I heard you correctly you're talking to richard Hurd soon aren't you yes
3: absolutely and i talked to uh tommy thompson Uh, i texted him uh, about scott's ankle and he said it absolutely happened and uh it was not a big deal it was like one of hundreds of problems that come up throughout the filming of an episode and uh him and scott just talked about it and they they decided together that scott would fall coming out of the time machine That would explain limp. Watching a little bit ahead, I watched Piano Man, and he got shot in the same leg that he had twisted his ankle and was limping Uh on. So I don't know if the production order was really that out of order, because in Private Dancer, he obviously had either – No ankle injury or he was really good at just taking the pain and making the show go on?
8: Well, actually, what I heard was that uh, he still was having trouble with his ankle during the filming of Private Dancer Mm. and he injured it again. And that, I think, explains why in Piano Man he uh, was Mm. shot in that leg. (laughs) Very interesting. (laughs) So uh, a recurring injury. (laughs) It's, It's
3: fun to think about these things and realize how one affects the other. Private Dancer, by the way, one of my favorite episodes.
8: Yeah, I love the deaf girl. Yeah. Quantum Leap taught me how to sign Quantum Leap. <laughs>
3: yeah, th- that was the first one I ever knew. Quantum Leap and then milk yeah. and then uh, the rest of them.
8: Yeah. But it's awesome that this um, ankle injury of Scott Bakula's does give us a little bit of burger theory. We haven't had the burger theory in a while.
3: Explain explain the burger theory.
8: Well, that that was your theory. I'm surprised you don't know it. No, I know the it, one, but where...
3: for, for listeners that might have joined our podcast a couple years in.
8: Oh, okay. Um, So this was uh, your invention where you believe that every episode is somehow related to the one previous. Um, If you look hard enough, you'll be able to find some way that they're all linked.
3: Mm -hmm. So where's the link in this one?
8: So the link would be that um, the dislocation of Scott Bakula's foot in this one is what caused them to have to do the rewrite so that he injures his foot in Future Boy And then a little bit later on during Private Dancer, he has another flare-up of this injury, and that affects why he's shot in the leg in Piano Men.
3: Makes sense. I like it.
8: All right. Well, some more episode-specific trivia. Um, The production team struggled to cast the role of Alexandra. So they asked Holly Fields, who appeared in Season 1's Kamikaze Kid and who is also a friend of the podcast, to prepare as a backup they discovered amy foster late in the day so unfortunately holly didn't get to do the do the part uh, she was bummed about it but happy for amy
3: and they are still friends today
8: fantastic mm. okay well al reflects dean stockwell's personal environmental stance again in this episode telling sam never to litter again after he advises sam to throw the phone number of the boyfriend away
3: I like those uh, one line interjections to uh,
8: just like the more you know, PSAs, just right in there. Yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll be able to see some more environmentalism coming through throughout the series. Hmm. Now, when Sam is talking about housewives going to school in the 1960s, he starts to say, my. So, is this an indication that Sam's own mother, Thelma Beckett, went through something similar to Emma and took some classes herself? That
3: that would fit in because uh, she lost her husband, so she had to maybe uh, figure out what she wanted to do with her life to uh, keep going.
8: Yeah, definitely. It's uh, unfortunate that that might be the reason why she uh, goes through something like that uh, to get her life together. But uh, it would be a nice expansion of the universe if uh, we ever did see some kind of uh, um, a look at what's going on with sam's family? it does really make me wonder what is going on with sam's family and um what they think has happened to sam since he left. Do they think maybe he's dead or do they have they reported him missing or anything like that? I don't know.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
8: Runaway is the first episode in which we see a mirror shot from a photograph. So this was when um Sam was in the monkey cage and they took the photo of him and we see the photo with Butchie's aura and the monkey and this sort of idea happens again in the cliffhanger teaser at the end of A Leap for Lisa to show that Sam had leapt into Lee Harvey Oswald and also at the beginning of season five's episode Liberation. Hmm. Yep. And we do have some other non-standard mirror shots occur at other points as well. Uh, in season four's Roberto, we're actually shown video footage of one of the episodes of Roberto, and it shows Sam's aura of Roberto doing his actions. And also in the Quantum Leap novel Search and Rescue, Al has leapt in this book, but during the leap, he's had a near-death experience, and he sees what uh, the aura looks like from above. Hmm. Yeah, So um, there would be interesting to see what other ways they could come up with for these mirror shots. I, I do like seeing the, the imagination come through.
3: Yeah, it's always nice when they do something just slightly different just to keep it fresh.
8: That's exactly it. Um, but speaking of the photograph with the monkeys, there's a small goof. When Sam meets the chimps, a photo is taken when he has two of them on top of him. But when we see the photo, there's only one chimp in it. Hmm. Definitely a problem with the editing there.
3: <laughs> I didn't notice that. I'm going to have to pull out the Blu-rays and watch it one more time. That's not a bad thing. I like it.
8: Yeah. Oh, well, better you than me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, I, I like the episode. I don't know why.
8: Yeah. I don't know uh, why. Okay. Well, that's all, that's all right. It's not going to be for everyone. Um, there aren't any bad episodes of Quantum Leap, but there are ones that I really love and ones that I tend to skip over, and this is just one of the ones that I tend mm. to skip over. So. Mm. But speaking of which, this is the second episode in a row where Al shows a lack of professionalism by not doing his research. Um, So you probably remember in – what was the episode beforehand? I've forgotten now. Um, It was A Little Miracle, wasn't it?
3: Rebel Without a Clue. A Little Miracle, yeah.
8: Yeah. So hang on. (laughs) I've forgotten now. What what was the thing he hadn't researched? Um, Mm. Oh, yeah. um, It was um, The Ghost of Christmas Future. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he thought it was Jacob Marley's costume that he should be using when it was uh, actually um, supposed to be the robes of the angel of death I so. wonder,
3: wonder if that was in the script like that or if it was just uh, the costume designer just you know took some liberty with it
8: quite possibly but uh, yeah it does make me wonder if um, at the project there was something going on with Al which was just you know, affecting his um, ability to do his job properly. Maybe uh, it was the anniversary of his and Beth's divorce. I don't know. Something might be happening there.
3: My thought's exactly that something was going on with Al, that uh, he was showing up but not quite himself.
8: Yeah. But also maybe it was just Al's own bias from his mother leaving the family that he thought, no, nah, it's it's the same situation. I don't need to do anything else. But uh, Yeah. As, as we know, in the maths business, you can never have too much data. Do your research. <laughs> mm, exactly. <laughs> All right. We've got a few more goofs. Emma says that The Feminine Mystique has just been published. But by July 1964, the book was well over a year old. So I suppose in the grand scheme of things, it had just been published. But uh, if it had been out for a year at that stage, I think you're pushing it.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, back then, news traveled a lot slower.
8: Yeah. Now, as they get to the Colorado border, there's a sign saying nothing without the deity where it should be deity. <laughs> it's actually got a spelling mistake on it. It's, it's wow. D-I-E-T-Y instead of D-E-I-T-Y. I would have
3: never figured that out because those two sound exactly the same to me.
8: <laughs> well, I just thought it was a, a jab at uh, how Americans are all supersized. So. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's funny.
8: <laughs> yeah uh now emma recognizes billy just from his rear end sticking out of the car which for the record she hasn't seen yet so perhaps hank actually does have a reason to worry after all
3: oh i think so i think uh her creative juices about her future were definitely churning
8: yeah now it does really make me wonder just how did emma fall off the cliff in the first place i mean it wasn't dark at the time surely she would have seen it (laughs) yeah um yeah, and also uh, when Sam runs off after Emma, then night falls very quickly. So, mm-hmm. I don't know, the timing just seems way, way off. I could, I could maybe believe it if it was dark when Emma ran off, but definitely not in the daytime.
3: <laughs> she might have had bad eyesight. She was in her 40s. She might not have been wearing her glasses. Uh, and uh, it does seem like a little weird, like, just because show. But um, yeah. it just recently happened to a guy in Hawaii a couple days ago. So it does happen. It does happen.
8: Yeah. I don't know. This is just another reason why I have to suspend my disbelief with this episode, I guess. Mm -hmm. And one more small goof. Uh, Emma is quite far away from Sam when she screams and falls. But we cut away and then we cut back and miraculously Sam has caught her. So I don't know. Problem with the editing there, I guess. Mm. Again, because show
3: because show it had to it had to happen
8: yeah having said that though the big landscape shots during that scene with the cliffs and the fireworks looked awesome i will give them that
3: Mm, yeah it was really good you could you could tell it was an effect but uh you couldn't uh, they didn't mess it up anywhere it looked perfect yeah
8: absolutely all right well that's all the trivia hayden do you have any news uh i don't but we do on the internet have quite a few quantum leap podcasts popping up lately so we wish them all of the best it's great that what we've started people are starting to pick up and want to talk about this amazing show as well and uh yeah Roseanne's gotten a reboot recently so hopefully with um the increase in fan activity we might eventually see a quantum leap reboot as well
3: yeah I love seeing the other uh, quantum leap podcasts pop up um, the only other one before these new crop of ones were um, What Once Went Wrong with Elizabeth. And, uh, yeah, it's it's nice to see all these Quantum Leap podcasts popping up because that means the fan base is uh, maybe is growing and resurging, which is great. And uh, some people had at first thought that it was like a competition thing between us and other Quantum Leap podcasts. But uh, my feeling is there's room enough on the Internet for all Quantum Leap podcasts. So uh, I yeah. hope – I You know, there's thousands of Star Trek podcasts, so why can't there be 15 Quantum Leap podcasts? And I really do encourage all of them to keep going, and I wish them well.
8: And we encourage our listeners to have a listen to them as well. Of course, yeah. Yeah. I really don't want to mention any because I know that I will skip some by accident, and Mm -hmm. I don't want any hurt feelings. But Mm -hmm. everyone who's making a Quantum Leap podcast at the moment know that, uh, you know, we're we're rooting for you and, um, yeah, if you want anything, just get into contact with us.
3: Absolutely, we're here with open arms.
8: Yep. All right. Well, that's probably it from me. Um, I managed to go over the episode, which is what we wanted. And <laughs> 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 but, but having said that, though, eight and a half months is one of my favourites. I reckon it's one of the best ones that I ever made. So
3: that's a really good one coming up, and I'm sure it will inspire a lot of conversation.
8: Oh uh, yeah, look. I, I've just finished writing and recording my segment for it and um, I went cross eyed about a hundred times during it, so lots of <laughs> lots and lots of
7: discussion coming up.
1: No problem is too difficult to solve as long
7: as we remember to ask ourselves the right questions. And speaking of questions, let's take a look at today's space mail before we time leap out of here. There we go, boy.
4: Okay, everyone, now it is time for feedback. All right, listen, before we get into this feedback... Spoiler alert, a lot of these responses have to do with our last show about the lost ending of Mirror Image, and we will be discussing the ending of the series as a response to these questions. So, just if you don't know the ending and you don't want to be spoiled, fast forward a little bit in the podcast and uh, hit us up on the other side, all right? Now, guys, can you believe it? We have a voicemail. It is a question that we received from Ben. In Omaha, so here's what Ben asks. Hey, Alby and
0: Heather, it's Ben Meisick from Omaha. I had a question: if uh, the Quantum Leap show were to ever be rebooted, could it be, and who would have the rights to own it? Still,
8: thanks.
4: Well, Ben, I hope it's okay that we are not Alby or Heather, but uh, I do have somewhat of an answer. Of uh, God, it's got to be back in 09. So that's almost 10 years ago now. I'm getting really old. I heard, <laughs> I heard Don Bellisario on stage at the Leap Back Convention 09. I was there in the audience when he said that NBC still owns the rights, but Don said something like, I want to do a feature. They don't want to do a feature. I don't want to do a TV movie. They want to do a TV movie. So apparently NBC and Universal still own the rights. But Don has a hand in it, and Matt, would you know about this? Is this something you researched for Beyond the Mirror Image?
5: Yeah, I mean, there, there doesn't seem to be that much concrete evidence, but that makes absolute sense. Um, I hadn't heard that that comment that you've just um, you've just relayed from the Leap Back Convention, but yeah, that that was always my assumption. that It's um, you know, at the end of the day. When it was produced, NBC and Universal were the ones um, putting the money into it, um, but Belisarius is bound to have uh, kept back the rights as well. So that also explains why it's taken so long, because when you have creative differences like that, the studio want one thing, the uh, original creator wants something else. That's, that could explain the delays.
6: Yeah, that's that's my understanding, is that there's more than one party involved, and just everyone has to come to an agreement.
4: Yeah, and that's why I took – I think it was maybe last month or the month before uh, on the podcast, we brought you some news. It spread around line around Facebook that Don said that he had written a new Quantum Leap feature script. And I was like, yeah, okay, great. He can write everything he wants, but <laughs> it doesn't mean that they're going to produce it, you know? So until all of the parties can get on board, Ben, uh, it's probably not going to happen. But I can say this. It will happen. I think that's almost inevitable. What do you guys think?
6: I think for sure. Eventually, there will be a, a remake of it. I don't really see a continuation happening at this point. But uh, I think it's a good idea. And I think it's something that because it's been so long, we'll have new things to cover and go over.
5: Yeah, I, I'm with Allison on this. I mean, it's, it's got to that point now where so much stuff from our youth is being rebooted. It's only a matter of time. The, the creative differences have to be overcome. But it's it's the perfect time for it. I, I think I think we'll see something in the next few years.
6: Um, w- without you know creating a big discussion out of it, do you guys want to see a reboot?
4: My thoughts are, I wouldn't mind seeing a reboot. I don't. I, I really don't think one is necessary, and at that same con, even Scott, he was on stage with Don at the time, and he said, look, even if they do a reboot, Dean and I are not going to be in it. We're too old. They're not going to want <laughs> us. There might be a cameo thing or something. So the way I would see a reboot go these days would maybe have Scott as um, – like in the pilot – Maybe come in once a season, twice a season for sweeps or whatever, just to pass the torch. But it's going to be a completely different paradigm. It's going to be a new leaper, a new observer, using the quantum leap sort of IP is is the way I see it. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends on how they do it. I mean – I'm enjoying Star Trek Discovery as much as it's a visual reboot of the Prime Universe, as much as they say that it's, it's going to lead into the original series. I can't see how it's going to because it's just so far advanced technologically and visually, but I don't mind because I'm enjoying the characters and I'm enjoying the story. So when it comes down to it, if you're going to reboot Quantum Leap, just do it respectfully. If you're true to the spirit of the show and you respect the characters and
5: give us a good story, I'll be on board. At least I'll give it a chance. Yeah. I think there will be a lot of reluctance and hesitation from fans at first. I think there will be a lot of fans who'll say, but it's it's all about the relationship between Scott and Dean. It can't be done with anyone else. But this is all the same stuff that was said about Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, no one said anything without William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy could work. And... Um, yeah, that was that was obviously proven wrong. I could see the same thing happening here. Like you say, Chris, um it would end up being with um with another pairing. And it, it could certainly be very good, but I think fans might take a little while to warm to it.
6: Yeah, I, I kinda share those sentiments. I feel like if they did a new one I would prefer just to do a hard reboot, just have it be its own thing and try to find their own voice with it, because you can't replicate what was in the original. So just try to make something really good with this concept. Mm. Well, thank you, Ben. You actually
4: sparked some nice discussion here, but we have some more feedback to get to. And uh, we got some good responses on Twitter in response to our Mirror Image Lost Ending special. Allison, would you mind reading the first tweet?
6: Sure. Sure. Uh This first tweet is from Avilos. I'm going to pronounce everything wrong, uh, at TomSaliva1978. I do not think the show was cancelled while this was filmed and they stopped shooting. As we know, the cancellation was last minute before airing. The episode probably was filmed a month or two before broadcast. There are probably records of the shooting schedule. Are you brave enough to ask Don for a new interview about this, winky face? I was at the 2009 convention and he was annoyed when someone asked about the leaked footage of the picture of Al, Beth and their daughters. Don is our Al the bartender, enigmatic, limited in what he will answer. Well, what do you guys think about this?
5: I'm brave enough to ask Don. I'll ask Don anything. I don't care. (laughs) Well, what
4: what can you do? Just
5: make sure sure you get every (laughs) question out of him that you want an answer for, just in case. Just in case it's the last
4: time. (laughs) There you go. That could be. I mean, I think that Tom or Avilos, whatever whatever you want to call yourself, at Tom Saliva 1978 – You're probably right. This speaks to, if you remember back to that Mirror Image special, uh, listeners, Susan Deal saying that she thinks that they were either on set shooting the final scene when maybe the news of the cancellation came down and either they finished filming or they stopped filming, but she was hazy on her recollection. And Matt, you said that okay, yeah, that 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 makes for a good dramatic story, but it's not very likely. Mm. And I think that uh Tom is is sort of backing that up. The episode was probably filmed a month or two before it was broadcast and you know they they wouldn't cancel it last minute like that.
6: Yeah, I think it was filmed. Like I agree with that sentiment and, and I would like to know what Donald Belisario would say about this. So yeah, a new interview would be great.
5: Yeah, it it would be great to know what Don thinks. I think I mean we've all got to remember this was a very long time ago. As much as Susan doesn't remember the details, I'm I'm not entirely convinced Don would have any better memory, or Dean, or, or anyone else that we asked to look that far back, but uh, it would certainly be great to have another opinion.
6: He would certainly know what was in mind about what they were thinking about doing, at least, even if he didn't remember specific details.
4: I, I would hope so. Yeah, I would have to think that he had some very definite ideas in mind, so... All right, why don't we move on? We also have another
5: tweet. Matt, take it away. So SuperChris1982 tweeted us to say, another great podcast. Oh, I loved hearing about the new Discovery. Excellent interview with Susan. She was a lovely interview who clearly loved being part of the show. Uh, The episode also made me reevaluate if I want the show to return or be rebooted. I want my Quantum Leap to return, but I don't think it ever can. I'm okay knowing Sam is out there putting right what once went wrong. All the best from, and then a picture of the Scottish flag. So I guess that's uh, Scotland giving us a wave. Thanks, Scotland.
6: I like the typo of Al the best. Oh. <laughs> I left that in because I thought, is that intentional? Is he being? I peeing? just
5: noticed that. <laughs> I corrected that as I went, but maybe not. Sorry, Super Chris, if that was a joke that I missed. Well, we, we got it. We get it, Super Chris. You're talking to your
4: people. So <laughs> I think it's it's funny. We have two feedback bits that are concerned with reboots. It's just reboot mania is still alive <laughs> and well, you know?
6: But yeah, I do find that interesting that, uh, that both of them are talking about reboots. I guess because of the, the content that we were talking about. But it looks like, you know, there is an audience for it. So if something like Netflix, for instance, wanted to pick this up and do it outside of the network, uh, I think that's something that that would have an audience. Oh, by all
4: means. And I just want to address one line that Super Chris puts in, and I hear this a lot in fandom. He says, I want my Quantum Leap to return, but I don't think it ever can. And it's wonderful that we as fans take ownership of properties, and we feel like what it was is what it should always be. Like, like to me, the original series is my Star Trek. But it doesn't preclude me liking other takes on Star Trek. So I would just say to, to, to get rid of that, that fanboy angst and to try to keep an open mind because nobody can ever take your quantum leap away from you. It's there. It exists. So all, what is it, 98 episodes or whatever? are, are sacrosanct. They, they, they're on every kind of media you can figure out and you will always be able to access them and enjoy them for what they are. Don't expect a reboot to live up to some kind of ideal like that because you will invariably be disappointed. Just take it for what it is
5: and, and try to run with it. Chris, I'm going to quote you next time I'm talking to Doctor Who fans. That was well said.
4: Uh, you would think Doctor Who fans would be the most malleable fans on the planet. Oh, There's a new Doctor every five minutes.
6: <laughs> <laughs> doctor Who is a good example of a show reinventing and rebooting itself and can be a continuation but be its own thing. I mean, that's really what it was when, you know, in 2005 when it came back and they were successful with it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So there you go. It's a perfect example. And to know that Whovians are now. Getting that way about <laughs> like Chris Eccleston and Matt Tennant, or Matt mm. Smith, David Tennant, right? <laughs> I knew I'd yeah. screw that up, but <laughs> and and they are the reboot, isn't that funny? So. Not a
6: true Doctor Who fan, you messed it up. <laughs> uh,
4: you know what? I liked Eccleston the best. He was my Doctor, so there.
6: Yeah, it, well, I mean, it's always the first one that people see, but that doesn't mean that they can't come up with fresh new ideas and and take the concept somewhere else. Yeah.
4: And that's not to say that I didn't like Matt Smith's take or David Tennant's take or even to an extent Capaldi's take. I think that honestly the doctor lives and dies by the companions. So I'm more interested in the companions than the doctor anyway. But we could have a whole other podcast. Are there Doctor Who podcasts? Maybe we should invent one.
6: Are there Doctor Who po- Of course there's Doctor <laughs> there's Who podcasts. Bound to be doctor Who podcasts. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? You mean I didn't I didn't just discover this? Damn. <laughs> It's like saying, is there a Star Trek podcast? What are you talking about? And
4: that's my other big idea. <laughs> Those millions are flying out the window. All right. Yeah. All right. Anyway, there are many ways that you can contact us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. When you're done listening to Doctor Who and you're done listening to Star Trek, listen to us and let us know what you think about our show. You can contact us by telephone at 707-847-6682. You can get us by email at QuantumLeapPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash QuantumLeapPodcast. And you can hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Quantum Leap Pod. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. So find all those ways to reach us, reach us in whatever way suits you best. And remember, we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. But wait, there's more. Because when you're done listening to this, you might not know this, but Matt and Allison are very accomplished individuals, and they have stuff of their own that you can check out. So, Allison, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you online?
6: Oh, thank you, man. You can find me at youtube.comslash movie nights the series. That's where I do my YouTube videos covering B movies or So Bad It's Good movies, uh, television, all sorts of different mishmash. Um you can find me on Twitter at obscuris underscore lupa. Or you can just look up my name, Alison Pregler, and that sort of leads to all my other social media stuff. So that's about it for me. What about you, Matt?
5: You're best finding me at tmebooks.uk. And that's where you can buy a huge 800-page shrine to Quantum Leap, uh, full of all kinds of uh, nerdy, geeky facts that that we love on this show.
6: That's an excellent book. I love it. And I love using it as a reference. Oh, thank you. That's how we met. There's also a pretty nifty forward from
4: what I understand so <laughs> <laughs>
6: hey hey if we're if we're throwing in plugs for people's books uh, you guys should check out uh, Chris's book is a quantum leap novel foreknowledge. That was really good.
5: Available now from all good secondhand bookstores.
4: (laughs) I'm sure you've never talked about it on the show before. Never. Me name dropping my book (laughs) and the fact that I'm a client. I never do that. You can find Foreknowledge on Amazon all over the place used. I mean, it's long out of print, but I've seen copies go from everywhere from, I don't know, $0.80 to $135, just depending on whatever matrix is in place on the book side of your choice.
6: And you're seeing all the money from it, aren't you?
4: Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Boatload. Boatloads. Uh, yeah, no, I don't see any of that, people. It was a writer for hire deal, and I was happy to do it because I just love Quantum Leap so much. So. Um, but you can find me online outside of my book. I have a website called deflipside.com, D-E-F-L-I-P-S-I-D-E.com. There you can find segments of a radio show that I do here locally on Long Island. It's all about geeky stuff and nerdy stuff. And you can also find links to the Quantum Leap podcast and all the other podcasts I'm going involved in, and also the Quantum Leap Radio sightings, which is a regular feature here on the Quantum Leap Podcast. So please check that out. It's deflipside.com D-E-F-L-I-P-S-I-D-E dot com.
5: Thank you for your letter, and remember
7: to tune in tomorrow when Captain Galaxy and future boy blast off for another adventure in time. Until then, I'll see you in the future!
5: Well, that was some great feedback. Lovely to hear what uh, everyone had to say about the last show, but uh, the future's just round the corner, so what are we looking at for the next episode?
4: Eight and a half months. All right, I think that works. What do you think?
6: Just <laughs> just leave, I thought you were going to un- say more. Leave it unedited like that. Just pause eight and a half months. <laughs> well, That's what I think. Well, that was the we... most
5: awful pause. That, that was a pregnant pause, literally.
6: Well, we're... <laughs> Oh my god, I just. We're, we're so inept. Pregnant pause. Uh, well, we're, we're, we're. Thank you for getting that. Can you believe I just got that? Oh, you didn't get it. Looks like you weren't expecting it.
4: Oh, uh, oh no. And, and that's the cut into the eight and a half months montage. Oh my
1: god. By popular demand, Quantum Leap, quantum leap. leaps back to Wednesday nights and gives birth to the biggest leap ever. Oh. I'm pregnant. It's impossible. What's happening? It's highly irregular. It's Quantum Leap on its new night, 9 to 10, 9 central on NBC.
6: All right. I am really excited to be watching Eight and a Half Months. It's one of my favorite episodes, so. Looking forward to next time. It's a
4: real classic. And for me, it holds a personal history because it is the first episode of Quantum Leap I ever saw. <gasps> and it's what got me into the... Yeah, so we'll talk about that next time, everybody. Uh, until then, I have been Christopher DeFilippis.
6: I'm Allison Pregler.
4: And I'm Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time, everyone. Take care.
2: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris. With voice talent and contributions from Zoe Dean and Hayden McQueenie. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Juan Muro. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Muro, Christopher DeFilippis, And Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Michael Bryan is the producer. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baronspace production.
4: And so it's a good luck. Well, I mean, you also had the good luck to appear with George Clooney and Shane Woodley and Bo Bridges in 2011. Uh, The movie was called The Descendants, and that was set in Hawaii. And I guess you just can't get out of uh, those tropical paradises, huh?
7: Well, that's interesting that you bring that up because I was not in The Descendants. I have a distant cousin named Tom McTeague. Are you kidding me? In Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. No. It, I am the worst so interviewer on the planet. Himself, <laughs> uh, so it's okay, man. He, <laughs> he listed himself as Tom McTeague, and because I'm a SAG actor, uh, anytime anybody says my name's Tom McTeague, it immediately it shoots comes up to in my picture. IMDB.
4: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah.
7: So, so it's, uh, yeah, that wasn't mine. I actually got all of his chats. That's good. <laughs> and I and I had to look him up. I go, hey, Tom McTeague. Yeah, you don't know me, but this is Tom McTeague, and uh, I got your checks. So oh, that's pretty funny. Uh, all right. I might not.
6: I'm Allison,
4: and I'm Matt. You guys want to give your full names?
6: No, <laughs> <laughs> no? no. All right, you... all right. I'll, I'll do yeah. yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. yeah. I'll do, it would
4: sound better. Yeah.
6: I'm Allison Pregler.
4: Tom wasn't in Runaway, but he was in the previous episode, A Little Miracle. He played Blake's sycophant... How do you say that word? Syn- I write these Psych- things, but I psychophantic. can't say them. Sycophantic. Thank you.
5: <laughs> is it? Is it not sycophantic? It's
6: sycophantic Syco- in
5: British English, but...
6: It, it okay. could be sycophantic. I, I always I'm hear, like, sycophant, okay. so... Sy- well, it's sy- going to be good bloopers. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's I true. If I steered you wrong, I'm sorry.
5: Okay. <laughs> Go with the other American in the room. Don't worry about me. Men don't have feelings. Men, aren't, men shouldn't be expressing feelings. He can't put it into words. Pardon me, I was just burping. <laughs> I, that's all right. I killed the conversation.
4: Uh, so I guess now we have to do uh,
5: to quantum deep. So let me go there. <laughs> yeah, you know that's the name of some quantum leap porn, right? Yes, yes I know, but yes. that's... Yeah, yes, yeah. that's
6: why we're laughing. <laughs> Well, right, at least you didn't um, call it Anal Leap, the other Anal ones, Leap, though. yeah. <laughs> oh, there's another... Oof.
5: Yeesh. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> I've only All been right. able to track down one of those. Lucky.
6: <laughs> oh, man, only one Quantum Leap porn. Just not yeah. enough. It's not enough. <laughs>
4: hey, hey, hey.
5: No, I was just going to say, I just realised I missed my, um, my, my favourite note of the episode. Somehow I managed to miss it, which is that... They're driving down the road at whatever miles an hour, and Emma manages to recognise Billy's butt stuck out of the car. <laughs> See, so, that, she recognises him, his butt immediately. She's never seen the car before.
6: Well, it's fate, you know. <laughs> she recognised his ass. I mean, yeah, no, that's a great ass. I shouldn't say
5: ass. <laughs> I mean, that's
4: <laughs> there, there is something going on there. Oh, that's beautiful we'll find a way we'll find some place to insert anyway, sorry it. I, I, don't, I don't think you could definitely out. and uh, you know no pun intended <laughs> well Billy, insert
6: billy's butt somewhere <laughs> it's gonna be a great blooper real boy that's william's butt uh... uh, you guys
4: are lunatics
6: uh, that was fun that was fun
0: butchie